And I literally just ran up half the room and just pointed and went, get off! Get off! Because it was like, there is nothing you can do here! Hi, I'm Elizabeth Flux. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books or short stories with a special guest. This month we're reading Theatre of Cruelty, which is one I can't come up with a joke about. All I've gotten is pun and duty, which I think is a bit meta. So we'll go with that. <laughs> and our guest, oh, it's got me. And our guest is Irish author Queeve C.K. McDonnell. Welcome, Queeve. Hello, lovely to be here. Nice to meet you both. Nice to meet you too. A rare treat for us to have an international guest phoning in, so to speak, from all the way across the world in Ireland. I'm actually in Manchester, which is not oh, of course. as I'm sure you were. Um, but uh, yeah, no, because I, I, I obviously am Irish, but uh, yes, I got thrown out. So I live in Manchester now. Uh, I thought <laughs> I'd see the world. and This is as far as I got. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. It's a good place to see the world. Mm. I mean, the weather is, uh, I mean, by current standards of this part of the world, it's not raining heavily, so that's better. <laughs> We're having the worst summer imaginable. Like I said, before we start recording, this, this is generally, and it's kind of why we're screwed as a species, is literally Britain and Ireland are having horribly rainy, terrible summer. It's been like two days of sunshine, and mainland Europe is on fire. <laughs> and God, British and Irish people have been going, oh, that looks great, doesn't it? Which just makes you really realize how screwed we are because people were like going, oh, that environmental disaster looks nice. So, um, yeah, we're, we're just having a, a soggy summer and that has continued today. Fair enough. Well, thanks again for dialing in. From Manchester, of course, the setting for your current series of books, the Stranger Times books. Yes. Which, I mean, and this is one of the reasons why you've ended up on the show, which has been recommended to us by a few people who say that it might have a little Pratchetty influence. Would you say that's true? Oh, God, yeah. Um, I mean, in the sense that everything I've ever written has got Pratchetty influence in it, to be honest with you, um, to the point where I'll occasionally write your phrase and go, did I come up with that? Or have I just remembered them because I've read so many of the books? Because that's always <laughs> a, a big worry when you're a writer. And is, same as when you're a comedian, you used to be a stand-up comic, and sometimes you put a line and pop in and you look at it for ages going, that feels too good to be me. Have I remembered somebody else's? But yeah, no, it's yeah. it's it's a massive. I mean, we got like, it's a weird thing where if you write anything that's essentially fantasy and has got humor in it, particularly in the British press, they just compare everything to Pratchett to the point where mm. like every, I think every newspaper, we got lovely reviews for the first book and every one of them mentioned Pratchett to the point where I had to say to the, because my publishers are trans world who are Terry Pratchett's publishers. And I had to say to them when they were doing the quotes, it's like, could we just stop? Like, if you need to mention it, because they always want to mention it, it's like, well, mention it once, but you've literally got a load of quotes here which have the name Pratchett in it three or four times. Can we just maybe, like, a <laughs> bit of variety? So, yeah, it does get heavily. I mean, I think personally, mine's obviously set in modern day. It's kind of set in, well, it's a version of the real world, and it's a bit more sort of dark and maybe a little bit more sweary at times. So there's, there is quite a few differences. But in the way that everything gets 
compared to Sir Terry in this area, then yeah, it's been compared, which is, you know, I mean, he's my all-time favourite author, so it's it's the, the nicest thing someone can say, while at the same time you do feel immediately the need to explain how it's not true. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, you've mentioned a couple of things there, like, you know, it's set in the real world, sort of, not really. You know, it's set in a real city, a fictional version of a real city, which I suppose some people might argue Ankh-Morpork is. But anyway, I'm getting off the point. If you had to describe what is the difference in tone or mood or, you know, between your work and, and Pratchett's work, what would you say? Oh, I mean, there's quite a few things. I think mine is probably darker um, in places. It's been weirdly, it occasionally gets described as horror, which I hate because... I don't watch horror movies. I'm a big wuss. I literally, my wife, like literally a friend of, a couple of a friend of myself and my wife, we used to do when we we're all living together before we we're all married and all that. We used to do a thing where um, we go to the cinema, they go in and see a horror film and me and my friend Sarah would go in and see like the latest animated thing from Pixar and then we'd all come out and meet each other in the car park afterwards because <laughs> I freak out with horror things and she doesn't like them either. So my, and like, just, I mean, there are occasionally sort of darkish scenes. Yeah, but the, I don't really like the, the horror thing, but there are just differences in tone. I mean, The Stranger Times is an ongoing series where I know obviously the Pratchett books are technically ongoing, but you can kind of read them in any order. He was brilliant at that. Mm. That's really hard, by the way, using recurring characters mm. and having it so people can jump in at any point. Like I know Ben Aranovich, yeah. who I'm sure will come up, bear in mind the subject matter of the short story and all. But he's had that with his books, The Rivers of London as well, where the publisher are always going, oh, is this a good one for someone to read if they've not read the rest of them? I might, in my head, I'm always going, just read the first one. That's that's how books work. Why are you not reading? <laughs> like, 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 yeah. And there's only three of them at the moment. There's going to be a fourth one before too long. But, you know, it's not that many. You can catch yeah. up. Well, like, so you occasionally get people like, doing odd reviews where this is like, I've literally, my favorite, one of my favorite reviews was, this is the third book in a series and I never read this kind of book. It wasn't really for me. I was like, yeah, what made you think it was? Who held the gun to your head to make you read the third book in a series and <laughs> a series of something you were never going to like? Who are these people? There are other books. It's not like we were published three books in a year, like the whole publishing industry just cranks out three and you've got to read them all. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, but it is, I mean, there's, there's, there is a lot of differences in style, but at the same time, there's very clear. I mean, there is, I think in the third book, there's a, a very deliberate joke for Pratchett fans where, because they have a thing where basically the Stranger Times, to explain it to people just quickly, is a newspaper in Manchester, which is kind of like a low rent version of the 14 Times. And the whole idea is they're reporting all this weird news. And then they find out in the first book um, that turns out some of it may actually be true when there is a lot of magic in the world and this kind of stuff going under the, un, under the, under the world that we know. So that's the idea. But they have a thing called Loom Day where people turn up um, and they're pitching their stories. So just members of the public turn up and they're literally queue up and come in and start telling people stories. And I think that's, that's been in a couple of the books now, Loom Day. And in the third book, there's one without giving anything away because this is just a sort of enough side. There's a bloke sitting there with a duck on his head. And he's sitting in the queue for the duck in his head. And then he comes up and, and meets one of the members of staff. And she literally says, are you a big Terry Pratchett fan? And he just looks at her and goes, no, why do you say that? And, <laughs> and the joke was then just not referring to the duck, which was the ultimate, you know, nod to that. But that, I mean, that was it. Like, there are little sort of other things probably in there, but that's the most obvious Terry Pratchett thing I think I've ever written. That's great. So I should start with the third one is is what I'm getting from this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Just pick a random chapter. Don't even start at the start. Just pick any random chapter. Start reading backwards. That's the best Halfway way through a sentence. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, I'll, um, 
I'll pay that. This is how I read most books. Like, yeah, you do that and then you spiral outwards. Yeah, feel, look, I you mean... Will I, occasionally, it's one of those things that surprised me. I spoke to loads of other authors that there will occasionally be misprints of your books and like at signings and stuff. Like I've seen a version of my book that literally starts in the middle of a chapter. There's not even anything else. It's just literally you open the cover and there's and and then the rest of a sentence and like the weirdest thing was people sort of went i thought it was really avant like all day you start it's like that's not how a book starts no publisher's gonna let you do that you've just got a badly printed book which surprisingly happens quite a bit yeah well i think famously there's an edition of good omens that has two thursdays and you know like the sections of the days of the week and one of them's got two thursdays i think it happens yeah, there was a book in Australia where um, there was like a section of about 10 pages, which you either got two of or none of. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, read this doubly hard or just forget about it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but it, it, it did win a major award. So, it, I mean, there we go. Was that, but that was, did, was that deliberately done or was that just, <laughs> was that just a mystery? I mean, I feel like it had, had to be an accident, but also it was, a very charming mistake. Like it could have been very cute. Like go find someone who has the 10 missing pages of your book and have a chat about it. Like, <laughs> well, that's getting into Kane's jawbone territory, isn't it? Well, the, the greatest thing, one of these things I've ever seen was uh, this guy, Will McLean, I know he's a very good writer. He's actually written, it's actually a horror book, but he's, I know him from, we both wrote comedy stuff together on TV, but he did a thing where he was signing his books. I don't even know where the idea came from. He did, he had to write, I think it was a, he had to sign like 500 or a thousand books so what he did was he signed them all and he put one word of a short story in each of them. So literally Whoa. they were numbered. So if you got the, and it was, it's a genius idea. I don't know if anyone's ever assembled it, but my God, you know, people are going to be trying to do that, which I just thought was incredible. What a, what a clever idea. That's amazing. That's very cool. I, I have a friend who was part of a similar project where uh, all the people involved got one word tattooed on them and they're all part of a, a short story permanently for the rest of their life. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. It's a commitment. I don't think she got one of the good words, though. I think she had like an and or a the <laughs> or something, which uh, which is fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Sorry if you're listening. Um, but, yeah, I thought that was cool. But I, that's great in the 500 words. Yeah. That seems like a perfect segue, though, to get onto the subject of this episode because this story also had a very precise word limit when it was first written. Because we are talking about theatre of cruelty, as we mentioned earlier, the pun and Judy story. As you put it I'm sorry to do that to everyone. It's, it's interesting because there's not, it's so full of jokes, which I'm sure we'll talk about for such a short story, but there's not heaps of puns in it. No. Not that sort not by of joke. standard, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You really had to cut them all out for word count. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean that's probably genuinely true. I had that one. We did a, I did a cartoon series years ago, and we, they literally had the thing quite late in it where they said it was going to be twelve minutes long, and they then kind of cut it back and say no, it's eleven minutes twenty, and this is quite far in the process. So what they did is they ended up going in and cutting out loads of jokes because that was the easiest thing to cut out. And you're like, but yeah, that's the thing I wrote it for. <laughs> that's oh. what. That's the point. Yeah, I teach uh, writing comedy for audio, and the, my students actually have just as we record a few days ago, handed in their final assignment, which is a 10-minute audio play. And when we do the read, the table read in the weeks before they hand it in, everyone's like, oh, it's, it's either way too long or way too short. And you're like, yeah, one page will make a huge difference. You just don't know. Yeah. yeah. And what you do in that situation is you just change the font and leave everything exactly <laughs> as it is in the mistaken belief that will somehow change the runtime. 
Um, I've just, I remember that over the years. So I can remember taking page numbers off so I could make the page slightly longer just to sort of try and trick producers that it wasn't as long as it was. <laughs> Did it work? Um, well, I write books now. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, this is also a good segue to the story because it was originally written for a magazine about books. In fact, W.H. Smith's booksellers magazine called Bookcase. Is that, now I, I did mean to look this up and usually I'm, I'm on top of this, but I don't think Bookcase magazine still exists, does it? I'd be surprised if it does because, it, it, yeah, I've never heard of it. And W.H. Smith's, I don't think would have, because they, they used to have back in the day, there was loads more things like that. Because to be honest, mm. it's one of the things with short stories now where there isn't a lot of places they can go. Whereas I think at a certain points, there was a lot more, they were a much bigger thing in the, the 70s and 80s. And maybe, maybe I think, again, people would notice better than me, but I'm guessing around the 90s, they started to die off. Well, not die off, but be yeah. cut back, shall we say. Yeah, it breaks my brain that like Philip K. Dick made a decent living and supported a family off pretty much writing short stories <laughs> professionally. And that should be the case still. But like, I just regularly think about that, which is why like I love his short stories, but um, some of them do feel like very rushed. Like they're sort of like, I'll just bang out something quickly to, to pay the rent kind of thing. The ideas are always sound, but sometimes the execution, you can feel how fast they're being written. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's mm. fair. Whereas these days, I think, you know, the, the primary places that short stories get published are in anthology books. There are a few magazines that publish them, but not heaps. And these days also, you can publish them on podcasts, which is something, of course, you do, Quiv, on your own podcast. Yeah, the Stranger Times podcast. It's kind of one of my favorite bits of it, actually. It's just been uh, nominated for a British Fantasy Award. Thank you very much Ooh. for audio, cause, which was was really cool because like, I'm not really sort of known. Like, I, I'm kind of doing a couple of fantasy conventions and stuff now because my other books, because I write as Quiv as well, and they're more crime and stuff. But it was, I was genuinely so pleased. Bless we got the nomination. This is true. Myself and my wife both had COVID a few weeks ago. Like re- we just, wow. you know, we, for like, so for like 10 days, we were wiped out and we were coughing so much and stuff. We were in two separate bedrooms because neither of us could get to sleep because the other one was always coughing. And like, literally, I remember like looking at my phone at one point and going, oh, and then shouting across the hallway going, I think we've been nominated for an award. Uh, um, which is, you know, great because like, I, I really love doing the short story podcast because basically the idea was genuinely like my first book uh, came out in the first Stranger Times book came out in 2020 in the middle of lockdown when there was no bookshops open in Britain or Ireland. Um, ironically enough, I can remember getting the picture. There was a big display of them in Australia because the bookshops mm. were open at the time because you were sort of frankly managing these things much better than we were. So, yeah, and I remember someone seeing, seeing this display and it was quite a sort of bittersweet moment. You're going, oh, there's a display. And then it's just on the other side of the planet because it's the only bookshop <laughs> that's currently open that can sell it. Um, so that was sort of weird. And then I started, I basically, I'd, I had a couple of short stories. And literally, like, I used to be a stand-up comedian. And obviously, when, when lockdown was sort of happened, basically for a year, all my mates who were stand-ups weren't working at all. Like, they were all just sitting around doing nothing. And I had mm-hmm. this idea where I had a couple of short stories where, oh, I might get, like, some friends of mine to, to narrate them. And it sort of took off where I started writing short stories and getting people to narrate them. And it was amazing because loads of people who'd never narrated anything before, but they were sort of stand-ups. And what was great about it, just they went in with such energy and really, I mean, some of them I I really love to bits. They've all been pretty good, but my God, some are incredible. Because the fascinating thing, especially with audiobooks and stuff, is stand-up comedians drive around the country for like, you know, thousands of miles a year. 
So I was mm-hmm. on a podcast recently. We did, I, mean, I was asked literally for uh, blind people, and I said we should get some sort of joint podcast because the two groups of people who listen to audiobooks most are blind people and stand-up comedians. They should be giving <laughs> each other recommendations. And then, like loads of friends of mine who'd never done anything like that, but were really excited to do it, and were, that they did, and one was great. It's been lovely because people have sort of found it. It's kind of like building out the world. And as we've probably come up, but like the fantasy area is perfect for short stories. It's great mm. for it's much because, like, as I say, I also write crime stuff and crime short stories. I've maybe done four or five of them over the years. You know, like my first book came out almost seven years ago now. And it just generally doesn't lend itself to that much. But it's perfect for fantasy because basically, like you were saying with the Philip K. Dick one, there's always an idea because that's the idea. They're perfect because you get one idea of what something to want to explore. And a short story is perfect for just sort of running around that idea and seeing where it can go. And it's just a delight for that, which is why I ended up doing, I think we're now doing, there's been, yeah, there's been three series and we're about, to, I'm going to do a fourth one. And it's just, it's almost like a, a fun thing I do outside of the books where it's really kind of just for myself, really. And then the fact that everyone else is enjoying it is great. So it's been lovely. And we'll have a link to that, of course, in the episode notes so you can find it and listen to it as well which I recommend. But let's talk about this short story. Let's do, I mean, we could, we could talk about a thousand things. We are, we are, we do have a mission on this podcast. A thousand things, each one being a word from this short yes. story. In a particular <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because it was originally a thousand words long. Though Pratchett claims in his notes that he did write this story to that word limit, it seems that's a later simplification. The story was actually written in a form closer to what we have now, but had to be trimmed to length for Bookcase magazine something Pratchett famously hated doing to his work. He eagerly took the chance to share a restored version for the program book of Oricon 15, a science fiction convention in Portland, Oregon, where he was a guest of honour in 1993. He then further expanded and tweaked it for The Wizards of Odd in 1996, and possibly again for A Blink of the Screen, notably changing his mind about whether certain characters were gnomes or goblins a few times. Big thanks to subscriber Craig McCallum and Pratchett expert Mark Burrows for their input on this true and geeky history of theatre of cruelty. Now, normally what we do, when we read a book, we read the blurb. When we read a short story, normally we read the author's remarks. I feel like that gives away (laughs) something of the story that, uh, well, we've talked about it already, I guess. I feel like I've given that away in the first thing I said other than my name. (laughs) I mean, to be fair, you could literally, if you listen to the podcast, you literally could just pause it now and take three minutes to read the short story and come back. So I don't, I don't think we need to worry yeah. too much mm. about spoilers, hopefully. That's true, that's true. And we will link also to the fact that this is one of the stories that is available for free on the internet. There's uh, a slightly earlier version than the one that's in print these days that is available on the LSpace web, uh, the website that has, you know, the long-running Terry Pratchett fan website, uh, with his blessing. He said he didn't want to see anyone distributing it in print, but he's happy if people want to just download it and read it for themselves because originally the magazine it was written for, Bookcase Magazine, was free. So it it wasn't like people were having to pay for it anyway. And then the magazine was gone and you couldn't get it. So he's like, that's fine. I got paid. And there's a lot of translations there too. So if you are listening and you want to read it in a different language. Including, thanks to a fan who has chosen to remain anonymous, a translation into orangutan. It's pretty good. My favourite line is, ook, 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 ook. Let's read the author's notes. This will set it up for us. So um, here's what Terry Pratch had to say in A Blink of the Screen about theatre of cruelty. This was written to length, 1,000 words, but tweaked a bit longer now, for WH Smith's free bookcase magazine in 1993. And some lucky people spotted it and walked out of the stores with armfuls of copies. 
It works best if your culture includes at least folk memories of Punch and Judy, a glove puppet show depicting wife beating, child abuse, cruelty to animals, assault on an officer of the law, murder, and complete and total disrespect of authority. Uh, I'll just note authority is spelt with a capital A. (laughs) It is for children, of course, who laugh themselves sick. The plot is Mr. Punch, who has a voice like a parrot with its foot caught in a power socket, beats up everyone, sometimes including the devil, with his stick, while shouting, that's the way to do it. It is indeed the original slapstick comedy. In many shows, the small dog Toby also appears and does nothing but sit at the side of the stage and wear a ruff. In my opinion, he is the brains of the outfit and controls the Punch and Judy man by strange mental powers. Despite the feeling of people like Captain Carrot of the Ankh-Morpork City Watch, who have occasionally tried to ban Punch, he survives and evolves. It can only be a matter of time before an anger management consultant is included amongst the puppets. I'd like to be there when it happens. Oh, happy day. He was quite grumpy a lot of the time, Pratchett, wasn't he? <laughs> you know, it, um, that does come across in the Rob Wilkins book that he could be very grumpy, which was interesting. But yeah. Yes. No, definitely. Is this a good point to say that I don't think in Australia our culture really does include Punch and Judy shows? Like all I, I know about them because I've always most of them from UK pop culture. Like you see them on TV shows and you hear about it in books, but I've never seen one. So I don't know if they're even done any. I mean, they probably are in the sense that I think they are seen as frankly horribly outdated and rather horrific, which as as he explains beautifully there, they were. There was, I mean, literally people throwing a baby around, whacking your wife with a stick. I mean, you know, I don't think that was ever hopefully, as, you know, openly as uh, recognized as a good thing. But even now people go, yeah, you may, you really, really, really shouldn't be hitting members of your family with anything. So I don't, I don't know if you... I'm sure there are, in the same way that God love them, there's bars in or places that people go, they've got collections of gollywogs, and they're like, oh, it's part of our culture. And you went, yeah, but it was never a good part. Like, everything doesn't have to be preserved. In the same way as we cure some diseases, we can probably get rid of some things that were not good ideas. And I, I don't yeah. know. I'm sure there's somewhere where people insist on still doing one, but um, I think they're very rarely to see them now. They do Mm. seem to have a bit of a cyclical thing where people go, this is gross, let's not do it anymore. And then people get nostalgic and go, oh, you remember that awful thing we used to do? Let's have a go at that. So they do come back every now and then, the Punch and Judy shows. Yeah, and I'm sure somebody's probably done a very clever reinvention of them at some point where they've changed the whole dynamic of it around or something like that. I'm sure there's an Edinburgh show. It's August now. I'm sure there's an Edinburgh show at the Comedy Festival right now. Because basically it's like one of these, one of the, the great universal troops is that name anything, there's an Edinburgh show right now where somebody's doing it, possibly in a room with no people in it, but they're still doing it. Well, weirdly enough, for a country without a real tradition of it, Australia is the country where we have produced a film adaptation. And not that long ago, I think it was only like 2019, which turned it into a revenge tragedy. So we did what now? Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. And the film is called Judy and Punch, if I remember rightly. So it's kind of, um, it kind of reverses the importance of the characters. And there's been some other adaptations too. Like I'm pretty sure there was an opera or a musical uh, somewhere in, in Europe. Um, which surprised me. It wasn't in the UK. I'm like, do people outside the UK know what Punch of Duty is? But I guess they would because its origins go back to sort of Commedia dell'arte and in the Italian sort of comic opera tradition. Mm. Punchinelli. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's mentioned in the, because you know, the, the first, I don't know if you've read the Rivers of London books, but which are brilliant, by the way, but the, mm. the very first Rivers of London book, um, Mr. Punch is, is sort of, not going away, but too much, but the bad guy, the spirit of thing. And I think there is mention of it being... Yeah, he does go into Italian stuff because Ben does 
ridiculous amounts of research. Like his books are yes. so well researched to insane levels, frankly. Like he's written a novella set in Germany. He flew to Germany like seven or some ridiculous amount of times to check things. The, the whole um, Commedia dell'arte thing is a nice link too, because this came out about five, four or five months before Men at Arms, to put it in context with the Discworld series. So it is set between the first two City Watch books. And uh, in our very first episode, when we talked about Men at Arms, which is a very long time ago now, about six years ago, we talked about in that episode, Comedia dell'arte as well, because there's the Fool's Guild in that book. So it's clearly something maybe that was on Pratchett's mind at the time. He was immersed in that world of clowns and slapstick comedy. And this popped out. Shall we start from the beginning where there's been a murder? Yeah. This might be my favourite ever Pratchett opening line. I was trying to think of other opening lines. I'd have to go back and look at books. It's an amazing, well, I say it's actually the first two sentences technically. It's an amazing opening though. It's such a good opening. Oh, it's a corker. Yeah. We've talked a lot about particularly the earlier stuff it has such a high sort of joke to prose ratio. And this short story, I think, you know, it goes back to those, some of that early stuff in terms of how many jokes he shoves in per page. It's pretty intense for such a short story. And he gives the joke quite a lot of room, ironically, to breathe, considering how restricted his word count is. <laughs> yes. And good. Yeah. This is a joke about the fact that it's a beautiful day to be alive, but of course, the murder victim is not alive. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, this great line, it would be hard to be deader without special training. Yeah. I mean... Just there's, yeah. there's like, I mean, literally in the first line, there's basically two or three gags in there because that's a topper mm. onto the one before it. We make, we make a man happy to be alive and probably the man would have been happier to be alive, which is my favorite bit. Because opening lines are really, I don't even try, try to, they're generally really hard um, to kind of really mm. have a, a zinger opening line that doesn't sort of mess the rest of the thing up. And that's brilliant. I mean, it's, yeah, absolutely gold. This one of my all-time favorite, Don Wimslow, who's a crime writer. He's brilliant. One, I mean, literally probably the, my favorite living crime writer. He did a collection of short stories, and he almost he did some short stories in the style of other writers. It was almost mm. like I mean, I wouldn't say, but he was kind of showing off how good he was by being able to do it. And, so it was, and like he did one that was a funny one, and I think it was like I think it was possibly in the style of Elmore Leonard. But the opening line was, um, "Nobody even knew how the monkey got hold of the gun." which was just an incredible line. Like, you're in. You're, you know what I mean? Like, that's like, oh, I want to find out more about this. But yeah, just amazing. And like a very, because like he's not a funny writer, but that was like completely catch you off guard was that as an amazing line. It's probably worth the yeah. podcast just in itself. Brank the Pratchett opening lines because he will have some absolute doozies, obviously. That is a mm. good idea. Yeah. Okay. Look, I'll, I'm going to write, that, write that idea down. I, I mean, the, the other thing I sometimes find with short writing is uh, you write the thing and then you go, okay, how much of the front can I cut off to skip straight to the chase? <laughs> and then you put that sort of line that just dumps you in. That sometimes works, but not always. Now I'm usually like, keep the front. Like, what is this meandering bit to get to the next bit? Can I cut? <laughs> well, see, my know. style is the meandering bit. That's the bit people like. So it's uh, <laughs> that's what I tell myself. But it depends on the kind of meandering you do. Yeah, well, it depends because that's that's always that's one of my, my big things. I'm literally always telling people because I get asked this a lot. I give very, I get asked a lot how to write um, funny, and I give very annoying answers. Which, <laughs> but my my single biggest thing is every time someone says about comedy is a genre it's like it's not my big belief is comedy is not a genre comedy is mm -hmm. a style it is how you tell the story it should never be the reason you tell the story because that's how you end up with bad because 
you know, when you're trying to just shoehorn in a joke for no reason that you, and you will see that, you know, and Pratchett was brilliant to that, particularly as he developed as a writer, you know, because there's always that thing where people say, don't start with the first two books because they're not the best examples. And there's obviously still lots of great stuff in him, but I think that's probably right. Because I think on the first couple of books he was doing, frankly, what I, I know what I did when I was early in my career is when, you know, you know, you're good at the comedy thing, you tend up to sort of overuse it a bit. It's mm-hmm. kind of your comfort thing. So when in doubt, you try and shove in a gag. And I think when he got later, he had more confidence in the story. And the funny just sort of happened because that's how his brain works. So I, I, that's why I think it's that's when he's at his very, very best is when he's just telling the story and the humor just comes naturally, I think. Yeah. And like writing for screen or audio, like when you're script writing, there is a sort of pressure when you're writing comedy to sort of have a laugh. Tim Ferguson writes about this in his book about narrative comedy writing, um, which is called The Cheeky Monkeys. Good read if you haven't uh, read it. But it, um, I think he says that it doesn't feel like a comedy unless you're getting like four or five laughs a minute, which is quite a lot. But that is on average. So it means you can have some room for the story to breathe. And then you can have one scene that's like, you're really like, you're going to die laughing kind of funny. And then there's a bit of drama. So you can kind of space it out a little bit too to let the story have some time to breathe. Weirdly, we did a thing with my, because the Bunny McGarry books, which are the crime books, which are sort of funny crime thing. But we did a thing a couple of years ago now where we asked like all the fans of the books, tell us your favorite funny line. And what was fascinating is basically people couldn't pick out something out of context, which is actually mm. good because it means that it's in the context of knowing the character and stuff, <laughs> things end up being funny. Whereas if you just take out the line, like the line that ended up winning the vote was, you have no appreciation of the fundamentals of the game, which is not funny in any way, shape or form on its own. It makes no sense. But when a little tubby 12 year old who's the assistant manager of a hurling team says it, people love it to the point where people get annoyed if he doesn't say it in any book. It's like the weird, it's the only person that has a catchphrase. But that's the thing, like you can't have funny lines you can pick out. But, you know, ultimately, and the genius of Pratchett was he made characters you cared about and then it became funny because you invested in the character's and, you know, these things don't exist in a bubble on their own. They exist in the context of the characters. It's like when you spend some time with people, then you try to explain a funny thing that happened <laughs> in a conversation to someone else. And you're in too deep before you realize it's not going to be funny, but you can't not finish the story. And then you end up with an awkward silence and it's just a bad time for everyone. Yeah. This is how I figured out stand-up wasn't my medium. You know, I would write solo shows and they'd be fine. They'd be funny. People would enjoy them. But then someone afterwards would go, tell us a joke. And I couldn't because I needed to do like a 10-minute part of the show for any of the jokes to be funny. And I'm like, that's not. No, but that's, to be fair, that's most stand-up comedians. I would say 95% (laughs) of comedians. First off, if you want to get punched or at the very least something very nasty said to you, go up to any comedian and go tell us a joke. I can oh, remember yeah. the husband of a, of a, of a, my, one of my wife's best friends the first time I met him in a bar in London. And, and I distinctly remember um, him going, tell us a joke, because I was a stand-up comedian. And then uh, my wife, who knew him well, standing on his big toe, because clearly they'd had a discussion. I just like, was this is like, I've only been going out with my wife for like a couple of weeks. And they went, don't be an idiot, Nick. Don't, don't just be cool. He's a stand-up comedian. Don't make it a thing. And the first thing he did was tell us a joke. And then I could see my wife wallop him on the foot for being an idiot. Um, but yeah, but most <laughs> comics can't, like I could never do that. And I was a stand-up for like 17 years. Um, mm. because yeah, I was like storytelling it. That's what, what, what I did. I mean, some like my friend Gary Delaney is a brilliant one, uh, one-liner comic. He can do it. Um, like he could do it all day. He won't do it to you on, for, on demand. <laughs> He'll probably just tell you to go no. buy a ticket to each No, you got to pay for a ticket and go see him do it for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but generally comics don't even work that way. Like there's quotable lines, but yeah, it's not the same. 
Yeah. I think that's why some people might be surprised that on this podcast, I think, Liz, you are the funny one because your talent is for the pithy one-liners and the puns, whereas that's not been my comic talent generally at all. So, I mean, it's generous of you to call that funny, so thank you. <laughs> they, are, they are funny. Come on. Come on. They're punny. I like it depends if they have the correct opinion or if they have the wrong opinion. So, yes. Well, look, we we let's get into this comic bit of business that happens here, and it is. I mean, this is All right. this is a classic bit of you can like with so much Pratchett, even in his short stories, you can just envisage this scene happening, just playing out with Colin and Nobby, who are there on the scene with the corpse, and just having this nonsense back and forth. Where Colin's like, well, look, here's all of the possible causes of death. Uh, he's been beaten with something blunt. He's been strangled with a string of sausages. And at least two animals with sharp teeth have savaged this guy. And then Nobby is like, let's arrest the suspects, <laughs> referring to the corpse itself. Victim. <laughs> um, just, just a great bit of nonsense back and forth. So delightful. I mean, it would be very convenient if, you know. And look, you know, sometimes I think this is a phrase that we probably last used on the podcast when we were talking about The Watch, the TV show. But um, sometimes when people write a joke and then they put another joke on, it's just too much. And, and in comedy writing parlance, we call that a hat on a hat, right? You don't need to wear a hat on top of another hat. You just need the best joke. But here there's just a nice string of jokes that all follow very naturally, like you were saying, from the plot being explained to us. Like sausages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like sausages on a string. And uh, yeah, it's great. Really funny. But also the other thing is that this gives us a little insight into what a regular investigation is like for the watch, because the watch novels are all about these huge crimes. Like someone's trying to kill the patrician or someone's got a weird weapon and they're shooting people all over town and nobody knows what it is or how they're doing it or something really important gets stolen. Like those things are huge crimes that, you know, take a whole book to solve and unravel the mystery behind. Whereas here we have a fairly run-of-the-mill murder like you would find in an episode of a procedural <laughs> crime drama, right? And they solve is it. Is this a run-of-the-mill murder? Well, well, well say, yeah. for the Discworld it is, I think. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, look, uh, there's no assassin's note pinned to him, so it is mysterious, I guess. Was it actually a murder, in fact? That's a good question. I think we'll discover whether or not it is. But I like that we see a bit more of the regular procedure, which includes taking the body back to the watch house and inspecting it for clues and then sending someone out on the case to investigate it. Pretty much, I mean, the kind of standard cop drama stuff that we expect. I don't know. I really, I enjoyed that about this story as well. Like it's very funny. It's got a very silly concept that really works, but also it's just a nice glimpse of, oh, here's what the watch was like when it was simpler. Cause this is still like, we don't have any of the new recruits yet. This is still the, the OG watch. Hey, Igor's. Yeah, there's no egos, there's no dwarfs, there's no trolls. Well, it's, it's probably the first, like, this might be the start of Pratchett thinking about, ooh, I could actually, like, develop criminology effectively, which is what he does. Like, all the different strands of it and stuff. It's probably the first time in this thing that the germ of the idea of what like, what would police procedure look like this when he started do, going through it. And then you start thinking of all these concepts, which I'm sure it might well be the first time he started developing that idea. Yeah, because there's not a lot of that in yeah. God's Guards. As the title suggests, I mean, because sort of an interesting shift in the idea when the watch are first introduced, it's not so much that they are the police force, right? They're meant to be a piss take of, you know, the guards who always die because they're not the important characters. 
and uh, and and they don't really take. I mean, Vimes is is not really taking it seriously. And if anything, you know, that first novel, he's got a lot of film noir kind of tropes going on, like he's drinking and he's in the gutter and he's talking about the city being a woman, all that kind of stuff. And it's then in Men at Arms, and from here, I think you're right. This is where it starts to be. Well, what if we make them more like actual cops, or or yeah. you know, fantasy drama cops? You know, well, it was, it was interesting his kind of relationship with the real world with disc world. Because I always think, yeah, he sort of developed like the, he took the ideas of what like criminology was like in our world and then said, well, it'd be like in the disc world. But I always think it was interesting as well as the references in the earlier books, even in like the, in the watch ones are there's like references to the Like he will make jokes about things that exist in our world. And then that's something that dropped out, I think, almost entirely as the books go on, where he stopped referring to our world and just kept everything in mm. the disc world which was interesting where he took concepts from this world, but he stopped taking jokes from this world. Because frankly, I think on the earlier books, when you see, when you read them now, I always feel like they sort of jar me out a little bit when he makes a joke that's kind of, like he's made jokes about different parts of the world, our world. And I can't remember a specific example, but there's definitely a couple of like, he names like New Orleans, I think at one point or something like that, um, which he Mm. obviously stopped doing as things went on. Yeah, and there's one somewhere where he says, and, you know, it's like when you're driving your car and such and such happens, or Thud, when he says, oh, there's always people who are willing to believe in aliens, and it's quite clearly not, and that's a weird late example, because you're right, Mm, he doesn't do it very much in the later books, but he's clearly not talking about people on the Discworld, he's talking about people in our world, and that's quite rare at that stage, and it does feel a little bit weird, and I agree, it pulls you a little bit out Mm. of the fiction. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds you there's an author. Yeah. Yes. I don't want to be reminded of that. Uh, <laughs> no. But look, that first scene is great. And then we get this next scene, which is the only scene that Vimes is in, but we get all of the members of the watch who are currently existing at this time. But yes, here we get Vimes pondering and complaining to himself. He's like, oh, and it's speaking of, of references to the real world, there are no direct references to our world, but Vimes here is wondering, oh, well, I wonder if there's another world where mysteries always make sense because there aren't wizards and zombies and uh, everything else to mess them up and make them complicated. I'm going to bring my annoying like editor hat here, like where you say pondering and complaining. Um, I had a bit that that tripped me up in this section, which was this line: Captain Vimes believed in logic in much the same way as a man in a desert believes in ice. I.e., it was something he really needed, but this just wasn't the place for it. I don't see that comparison or that explanation of that comparison making sense because a man in the desert does not need ice but arguably it is, is the place for it. Like it's not a place that it will thrive, but it doesn't quite make sense in terms of like in a comparison, like you could say he believed in logic, like a man in desert believes in ice, like it's there, but unobtainable. That makes sense. But his explanation doesn't. So I don't know. What did you both think? Um, I think the line for me, probably, in much the same way as a man in the desert believed in ice, I was something that he really needed, but there just wasn't the world for it. I mean, I think it makes sense because you do need like ice as in, you know, it's cold water effectively. So if you think of it as like someone like a man in the desert would love cold water. So, yeah, I mean, I see your point, but I think it's okay. So my pedant hat is on. Like it's not <laughs> the whole story is a write off, but I'm like frowning. Well, I mean, look, I, I, I confess I didn't, uh, I didn't think too much about that line, although I thought it, it is really interesting to see how Vimes's attitude towards clues and logic is portrayed here compared to just a couple of books later in the Watch series where he says he's always been suspicious of clues and he doesn't trust them instinctively, whereas here he's, like, excited to see some possible clues. And, you know, in those later books, there's also, you know, he has a very explicit 
takedown of the kind of Sherlockian style of deduction. Whereas here we've got just a straight up Sherlock Holmes reference. You know, he talks about wizards making locked room mysteries commonplace, zombies who can be the victim and the chief witness of a murder. Uh, But then he also says, surely there's a world where dogs could be relied upon to do nothing in the nighttime and not go around chatting to people, which is both a reference probably to Gaspode, the talking dog, who Vimes I don't think ever meets. So uh, certainly not for any length of time. He's got rumour mills. Like he'd... Yeah, it's, it's supposed to be, it is referred to as being like an Angkor Park urban legend about the dog that talks, isn't it? I'm sure. They- That's true. No, I think you're right. So I've missed a trick there. Thank you. <laughs> but I do also like that because it is a, it's a Sherlock Holmes reference to the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime, a line from Sherlock Holmes, which is itself like one of the, probably the funniest exchange in a Sherlock Holmes short story. <laughs> Uh, he's talking to the detective from Scotland Yard and he's, the detective says, is there any other point to which you'd wish to draw my attention? And Sherlock Holmes says, well, to the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. And the detective says, the dog did nothing in the nighttime. And Sherlock Holmes says, that was the curious incident. <laughs> you're like, yeah, that's quite witty. And also it is, you know, key to the mystery of this stolen racehorse in that story. But here, yeah, he's just referencing that. And it's like, not only are they doing things in the nighttime, one of the things they're doing is going around talking to people and making my life difficult as a policeman. So, yes, I like that double reference there. But, yeah, the attitude to clues is is interesting. Mm. Not that we get a lot of – there's just enough because you don't really need that many. It's such a short story. We're going to get to the conclusion very quickly. But the clues that we get are – Conclusion. Mm. Yes. Uh, but we get how he died, which is seemingly he's been beaten up and bitten and strangled with sausages. And then we find out that he hasn't been robbed because he's got a bunch of money, but his, all his money is in small change, pennies and halfpennies. And they find a card and they realize he's also a children's entertainer. And then they bring in Carrot, um, who sort of takes over the story for the rest of it. Yeah. And it's nice to see him sort of doing his thing by himself. We don't actually get to see that very often in the other stories. No, and he uses the clues very well. Like he sort of pinpoints down where he needs to go and he comes up with a plan of attack that is very good. Um, and I think we have a question about that later. Carrot goes to find an old man, the oldest, sickest man he can find, and just camps out by his bedside until someone shows up. Okay, so I want to I address this because I feel like this. there's a reason this happens in this short story and not in one of the books. You don't want to set up a solution that could potentially be used all the time. And yet here in this story... Carrot goes, I've got to solve a murder and there were no witnesses, but I know one person who will definitely have been there and how to find them and talk to them. So he goes and waits for an old man to die so he can ask death about it. And I'm like, surely this is ruining any mystery about any murder for the rest of the series. Yep. But I think genuinely that's why it's in a short story because it's sort of not canon. Because you do see that a lot where it's interesting because before I ever wrote like urban fantasy again i'm like in a ben aranovich fan group just because i was there for years in facebook and it's always interesting where you see people like very exact questions about is this referring to that and this is referring to that and to be honest i read those as an author and i go especially with ben you go he may well have meant that but a lot of time if you're honest you go yeah he just checked he just moved on like you said about about pratchett with the idea for clues and stuff it's because when he was writing something else he was in a flow state and you don't in a flow state go well did i say something three books ago that might contradict this (laughs) So it's yeah. one of these things that an editor can pick up and stuff. But I think that's when I read this as well, I thought that's a brilliant concept. And also, like you're saying, it screws up so much after it, which is why you can just put it in a short story. And if anybody brings it up and goes, yeah, it's, it's not canon. It's all right. Don't worry about it. Because, yeah, it, it would. It's, 
I think the I think that might have even been the inspiration for this short story. I think he might have come up with the idea of somebody interviewing death and he had it in his head and then this popped in as a great way of using it. Um, just that's my theory just as a writer myself because if I'd been like him and that had popped into my head, I thought, oh, that's brilliant. But then you'd go, oh, God, I can't really use that in a book. So maybe he thought this was a good place to use it knowing that he could probably get away with it. Mm. Yeah, though I would love to see this concept explored like over the course of a book, and then something stops him from ever doing it again. Like it would have been very nice to see it stretched, even if it's just for more death scenes. Because I always enjoy when he pops up in these books or stories. Oh yeah, and his back and forth with Carrot in this is is again like <laughs> such a great exchange. So many good little gags in that. Yeah, what gangster movies is he watching, or is he like watching The Bill or something? Grass someone up, drop a dime. <laughs> yeah, drop a deal. The thing. I think my favorite line is is the one about. I'm trying to remember the exact thing about before the fact or after the fact, and he's like, "I am the fact." That's just a oh, glorious yeah. line. That's incredible. Young man, I am the fact. Yeah, <laughs> that might really be my good. favorite ever. That might be my favorite ever death line. Again, this is such a good short story because it's just yeah, yeah that's just beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he also fits in. It's not just that there's jokes. It's not just there's a nice fantasy concept, and he's got all these little ideas, but also classic crime tropes in here like he's you know carrots asking the suspect or the witness a question and he's basically saying i'm not going to answer the question that you're asking me or that i think you're asking me and instead he gives away a bit of information that is even more helpful by accident because he lets carrot know that nobody murdered him he wasn't murdered at all and uh, i have to admit like when i was reading it i was like oh and also did he let him know his name and then i realized no 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 they find out his name already <laughs> like, they didn't that wasn't it. It's just that he knows he's not been murdered. And I, I, yeah, great classic bit of crime fiction stuff there. Yeah. And I suppose it does also get you by the, the like we were saying, the, the problem that could you not do this every time is the fact that death doesn't cooperate. He just accidentally says something. So I guess the other way out of it is death going, well, I won't get cut like that again. Yeah. yeah. Well, he does say it's the first time he's ever helped the police with their inquiries and it, and which kind of suggests he's like, and uh, never again. <laughs> yeah. But I'm glad he did it once for this story. Yeah. And then there's just one other scene, really, which is Carrot does an investigation. He does some, you know, classic footwork, goes around, asks some questions, figures out where this guy brings the case home. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, but he uh, finds out where the sausages got bought from. He sort of figures out what's going on and he goes back to the scene of the crime where, and this is, again, a great joke, Nobby has... <laughs> has chalked the outline of the body and then started colouring it in with chalk and started getting thrown pennies for his uh, amazing illustration, a walking stick and some trees and some bushes in the background. (laughs) It took me a little while to visualise that because originally I thought, oh, he's just drawing drawing a picture inside the chalk outline and then I read it again. I was like, no, 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 he's adding details to the scene. (laughs) Very silly. Um, Look, that did cause me to look this up because, uh, you know, you always see chalk outlines in crime fiction. Have you ever put a chalk outline in one of your books, Queef? I don't know if I have, you know. Um, Just because I don't really do sort of standard, there's been a murder, investigate the murder things. Um, Mm. So I don't think I ever have. I probably will at some point because I'm going to do, I have an idea. I mean, this is like several books down the line, but just quickly, I had an idea. You know, one of the all-time classic crime tropes is people stuck on an island and then somebody's murdered and stuff. That's like a big, it goes back to the book with the problematic, several problematic names. And then there were none, the most recent title. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, That one. But that's the first one. And then Chris Brookmeyer did a great one. I know there's several other versions of it. And I have a version using my character because my character is like a policeman 
in in Dublin, but he's also he runs a, a hurling team, like which is an Irish sport, and he basically uses an early intervention thing with kids. He's an under twelve football, and the idea of doing one of those island things and then a school trip gets trapped on the island with them. I thought it was hilarious to do the classic thing, and then like literally came up with that idea and went, "Oh, this is I, I'm literally gonna I can't wait to write it." But I probably will put in like, oh, I try deliberately because that's literally me trying to deliberately do crime tropes. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's. I don't know if you're about to say, but I don't. I doubt they still do that. Bar anything else, they, they, there wouldn't be any logic to it now, would there? No. Well, look, I, I look. Did they ever really? It seems like they only ever really did it for the purposes of press photography. So you could take a picture of the hmm. scene, but without the body in it. Mm. But you could see where the body was. Like it doesn't. I couldn't find any evidence when I was reading about it that it was ever for any kind of forensic or investigation reason. Because uh, these days it's considered a massive contamination of the scene. And I did find a couple of references from American forensics folks talking about some police officers do or did do it without authorization. And they used to call them chalk fairies because once they'd done it, they thought they were so clever and then they wouldn't own up to it when everyone was angry about it. So it was like, oh, the chalk fairies have done it, which I thought was very silly. But yeah, I don't, I think you only ever see it in, in crime fiction. It's not something that really happens. And you, you don't even see it in crime fiction that much anymore because now it's gotten all very realistic. So instead they use like, you know, the little numbered markers and stuff. Yeah. 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 I don't even remember it from Agatha Christie books. It's probably been done far more in fiction than it ever was in reality, I'd imagine, especially yeah. for TV. Um, yeah. Because yeah. there was that time where like they don't obviously show crime scene photographs now. But there was a period where they would just show like crime scene photos in the, if I remember this rightly, like in newspapers and stuff. And then I'm guessing what happened is people got squeamish about it and they started replacing it with a chalk outline. And then they probably went, why are we showing people pictures of a crime scene in the, in the newspaper? Cause it was just, you know, people, it was entertainment, frankly, is what it was used for. Um, mm. you know, or sort of people, you know, rubbernecking, but yeah, it is, it is a weird yeah. little trope, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I'm trying to think of when I've even seen it in media. And the only one I can remember is in an episode of Press Gang way back in the day where a kid is drawing a chalk outline on the street. It's not part of any official investigation. And that was really effective and interesting, but it was also probably yeah. a good excuse to do it. You know? So, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's probably been done more the naked gun that sticks in my head is like sort of all those kind of films because they would have had gags with that sort of stuff. I know they've had at least a couple where, again, something similar to this, where it was that and then the guy's holding a martini or something like that. Yeah. 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 Like comedy. Yeah, it's absolutely right where it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, Nobby's making some some money. There's a few more pennies flying around. There's a lot of, lot of people getting paid in pennies in this story. The entertainment district. Yeah. Yeah. Presumably. Yeah, that makes sense. But then Carrot's worked it out and he comes back to the scene of the crime and he's just sort of says, uh, you can come out now. <laughs> I know you're there. Uh, again, classic trope uh, deployed in, an, in a new and interesting way. I mean, I think that is really a Pratchett thing, isn't it? Like he loves, he loves tropes. He has such a deep understanding of stories and he loves to use the things that we recognize from stories and then just put a new twist on them so that they're not quite what we expect. And he does it again here because Carrot has figured out that there were a bunch of gnomes working with this children's entertainer. He was doing, I mean, and it, he's very, I mean, this is why I was slightly not keen to read out the author's notes because he kind of gives away the thing. And I think if you know about Punch and Judy, part of the joy of this story when you would have been reading it originally would have been getting to this bit at the end and going, oh, it's a Punch and Judy show, right? You would have, but nowadays, you know, we all know that about the story going in because of the introduction and because of uh, the, the talk around it. 
But I think, yeah, it's just a delightful sort of reveal that it was a Punch and Judy show, but not with puppets, with gnomes, tiny little people. Although, interestingly enough, the gnomes are not just the people from the puppet show, because there is the equivalent of Punch and Judy and the baby and the policeman, but there's also the dog. Although it's not clear if the dog is just a small, regular dog or a gnome-sized dog. Not really sure about that. Uh, And a very small alligator. And it's not clear if they're gnomes as well or if they're just very small creatures of the normal variety. I I assume they they were. Is is it alligator alligator or crocodile? I thought it was because it's classically a crocodile in the show, isn't it? Usually it's a crocodile, but in the edition of the book I've got, it says alligator. But I wonder if the digital version I've got has been Americanized. Oh, no, it says alligator. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That might just be that nobody picked up it should be a crocodile instead of an alligator. It's always, it's always one of these things people always think, do you think that was that? And I was like, it's probably just because no, nobody noticed. <laughs> it's kind of- I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I don't think that the Punch and Judy crocodile puppet is detailed enough that you can tell which one it is. Very, very true. But, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, what is the difference between an alligator uh, and a crocodile? I mean... Wasn't there one salt water and one fresh water? Well, you can get crocodiles of both kinds. Okay. Then that puts paid to my theory, and I do not know the difference. Uh, well, they look, they do look a bit different. See, because as Australians, you should know this, because like everything over there kills you. That's the whole, that's all we know, I know about Australia is that well, anything will kill you. I'm focused on spiders and snakes. Like, <laughs> well, we don't, we don't have to, well, in Melbourne, we don't have to worry about crocodiles at all, but we also, we don't really need to know because if you see one in Australia, it's a crocodile. We don't have any alligators. So there is that. But yeah, we, yeah, I, I, look, I used to know, I, I learned about that because there's also Gaimans, they're called, no relation to the author, as far as I know. Um, or is it Caymans? It'd be amazing if it was, wouldn't it? It uh, would be. It would be. He's been keeping that quiet. He'd have some explaining to do. Um. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's, there's a couple of other. Or does it all make sense? <laughs> there's a couple of other types of crocodilian creatures that are not quite crocodiles or alligators. And there's, of course, lots of different kinds of both. So, who knows? Who knows? But be honest, though, man. How happy are you got the word crocodilian in just there? That was the, <laughs> that must have been something of a day's highlight for you. Ah, <laughs> uh, it was. It was quite nice. Thank you. Thank you. It's the first time in the podcast, I think. Actually, do we have a special champagne for that? <laughs> no, I don't think we do. We should. We should. Seventy episodes uh, in, we don't have here. I'll champagne. pour. I'll pour your glass in your honor because I drink champagne while I'm writing all the time. So there you go. Oh, That's well. the champagne nice. going Thank in. You. Nice, finally getting the word in. It only took you 70 episodes. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about Offler before, so I feel like I would have had plenty of opportunities. It's my own fault if I haven't done it, frankly. Um, it's like those, one of those great big life but, ambitions you have that mean nothing to anyone else. I can remember when my dad, God rest his soul, brought, because it, the, he brought us on holidays every year, obviously, around Ireland, me and my three siblings, and just going different places to see different rain. And uh, at one point we crossed, we passed a sign I don't even know which county is. We passed a sign and he pulled over to the side of the road with all four of us and my mother all crammed into a car that couldn't fit that many people. And he stopped the car and went, you've now been in every county in Ireland. And it was like a big momentous moment for him. And he just, all he had was four teenage kids going, eh, rains a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> Such a, you could see his face like, oh. Uh, see, I look full props to your for your dad, but I I feel like he missed a trick by not telling you that's what he was doing because then everyone would have been excited because they would have had the build up instead of just having this thing revealed to them after the fact. You know, you've not met my siblings. <laughs> okay, they wouldn't have cared. Fair enough. Fair enough. 
Like, I'm kind of excited that you've been to every county in Ireland and I wasn't even remotely there. Yeah, it, it's one of those things as a kid you don't really care about, but now I'm going, oh, that's good. Um, but that's always the, cl- the classic <laughs> thing that you don't. Because all that would have happened there is we'd have gone, is this why we've been to so many rubbish places? Because you're just filling in the map. <laughs> Is this why we've been? Is this why we've literally been somewhere for two weeks? Where the only entertainment was watching the donkey in the field beside us, which fun fact died uh, while we were there. I didn't realize this. I only found this out a few years ago. The donkey that wow. we all liked in the field beside us died one day. My mother realized my, they had to pack us all into the car for no reason to get us out oh, of man. there, and then ring the person whose, whose house we'd rented to go. Your donkey's dead. Get it out before the children find out. Oh no. Uh, it's bringing back memories of a certain film. <laughs> I saw the look on your face. It's not a happy memory, uh, listener. So we won't dwell on that. But no, I uh, look. I I can identify though with your dad's goal. Like I wanted to visit every state and territory in Australia because it's quite a long way to go to get to some of them. And I think the last one that I went to was was Tasmania, and I only did that about five years ago. So yeah, that was quite that was a big deal. There's only like is it seven. I'm going to embarrass myself now by getting the number wrong. Seven of them, isn't there? I think that's seven. My geography is terrible. I, I cannot help you. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm well surprisingly look, enough, I don't know this. Uh, I didn't realize until a couple of years ago, Tasmania was a real place. I just thought it was the place they came up with for that <laughs> dust devil thing. Which, by the way, <laughs> is awesome. Well done on that. Uh, don't let Tasmanians let, know that because um, they'll be mad. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I, but they're I, a long I, way away, which is why I'm safe saying it. <laughs> Prashat would like to make our position clear that we know Tasmania exists, and we think it's rather lovely. Please send all correspondence on this matter to Queef. Taz the Tasmanian Devil of Looney Tunes fame was created by American animator and illustrator Robert McKimmon in 1954, possibly inspired by Tasmanian film star Errol Flynn, as well as the actual Tassie Devil, so we can't take any local pride in that. And I'm embarrassed to say I can't count, as well as Tasmania, There are five mainland Australian states and two territories, or a total of eight. So yeah, I get it. I do have a theory about this, um, about how they're gnomes, but also this. I thought that they were just um, in costume as an alligator and a dog, not that they were literally like a little version of that. But that could have been my brain just wanting that to be the simple answer. There's nothing in the text that supports that theory. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they don't talk, but they do come out when carrot talks and it doesn't say like they're being led by the other gnomes but on the other hand the body of chaz slumber has been bitten by two different animals with sharp teeth so that's right it mentions that which imply that they are mm. yeah, yeah well it does say big sharp mm. teeth and i'm like if they're so small they can't have big sharp teeth <laughs> so it's like if you're maybe because they, they're constantly inhabiting a role maybe they just they believe that they are the thing that they're playing but they're still not actually like a tiny alligator they are a gnome playing an alligator, but who believes they are an alligator now? Mm. Is that a simpler version or is that much, much more complicated? It's more complicated because how's the gnome making the mouth move? Yeah. Oh, well, surgery. It'd have to to be like a world-class Muppeteer, you know, (laughs) on a small scale. I Look, my... They've got like a string and it like... Okay, that could happen, yeah. But then why not just use a real puppet? Yeah, Yeah, but the puppet's the costume, yeah. Yeah. But maybe it's just they've got access to gnomes and you can put a gnome in a costume. Well, that's true. And the gnome's operating the puppet, not not Mr. Slumber. Look, I, my headcount for this now, I've decided, is that Toby the dog is a regular but very small dog in a rough because it says that Toby collects the money. And I think if it was a gnome-sized dog, you wouldn't be able to carry more than a coin or two. So I think it's a, it's a regular but small dog. And 
a very small alligator because they do start off small. So it could just be like a baby alligator. What if the dog did the biting? Well, they both did the biting. Oh, okay. There's mm. two different sets of teeth in there. Plus, if you actually yeah. remember the, you know, when you do the alligator is like the most simple shadow puppet is oh, alligator yeah, yeah, yeah. slash crocodile, but it's quite big. Like it, it would be like the puppet in a Punch and Judy of the alligator would have a much bigger size mouth than in real life because it would be like the size of the puppets, basically. Um, That's true. Cause, well, because also the alligator right. sometimes does swallow the other puppets in the Punch and Judy show mm. or versions of it do. I think I'm sure I've seen that in some of the ones I've seen. These shows sound silly. They are very silly. They're very silly. Have you never seen one, Liz? Yeah, I said that up top. I have not. I've only seen like bits of them as um, is useful for other pop culture. They're like, oh, yeah, we're showing that it's a certain year or that children are watching a thing, but you don't really see the whole thing. Mm. And Pratchett, I think, must have been a fan because I, it's, look, it's been, what, five years since we read Dodger for the podcast, but I'm pretty sure there's a Punch and Judy show in Dodger as well. So. That sounds about you know, right. But I, I don't know if he was particularly into it or if he just thought it was an interesting bit of culture to reference, you know. Well, was he into Morris dancing or? Uh, I think, well, not. Because he references it all the time, so it doesn't necessarily mean that he was, like, into it. He's, like, yeah. fascinated by it. That's a British thing, though. You've got to make fun of Morris dancing. And he, he's, he does it in yeah. a very gentle way, but he does point out how ridiculous it is while also kind of celebrating it. So I feel like that's just... Maybe maybe it's the same with Punch and Judy. It's just like, we have this ridiculous bit of our culture. Let's point it out. Well, the intro sort of, because I, I hadn't read the intro, uh, but it's surprising when, it, when you, the intro that you read out, he was kind of defending it almost. Because there was a thing mm. about, oh, there'll probably be anger management things and you can't do this stuff anymore. So I was quite surprised the tone of it was slightly probably more defensive of Punch and Judy. But at the same time, I think it's one of these things that we always kind of, it may not have been a strongly held opinion either way. You may have found them amusing, but at the same time, you might have gone, yeah, maybe they shouldn't be showing this to kids. We over overestimate how strongly people feel about something just because they've written it down. Like, well, if they've written mm. it down, they must really feel so. And you're going, no, it's just, you have to write an introduction. That's the one he wrote. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think here he's like arguing that you should have, you know, violence against women in children's entertainment. I mean, I think what he's arguing, if anything, is like kids love stuff where people get beaten up and they don't think about it too hard. Mm. Uh, which is not to say that. I think we should bring Punch and Judy back in its original form. Let's not do that, actually. But I mean, certainly when I saw it as a kid, it struck me as the Victorian equivalent of a Bugs Bunny cartoon. You know, there's a lot of sound and violence, but it didn't really signify very much. And there's some interesting writing about where that comes from, because part of Punch's thing is he's always very put upon, like everybody treats him very badly. But then his reaction is to like beat them with a stick, which is, you know, not an appropriate reaction, but in the comic context of of stupid entertainment for kids, it makes sense. You know, kids are frustrated. They don't like it when people tell them what to do. They wish they could, you know, metaphorically hit somebody with a stick. Uh, Hopefully not literally, you know. And like you say in Looney Tunes, people regularly survive having anvils dropped on them. So yeah. Because that's the whole point. Violence doesn't have con- doesn't have a consequence. I guess is the thing in kids' cartoons and stuff like that. Here we realize that it's even worse because this isn't puppets. The children's entertainer Chaz Slumber was making these gnomes act out effectively a Punch and Judy show. I think it's fairly clear from the context that Punch and Judy is not otherwise a thing that exists on the Discord at this point. He's just invented this idea of like a violent slapstick entertainment for kids that he can make the gnomes do uh, and they don't really want to do it and they try to quit and he's chasing them and they did attack him when he fell over but they didn't kill him he choked to death on his own swazzle 
which, uh, if you're not familiar with Punch and Judy, is like a sort of weird little thing that uh, the punch man or, or professor, as they're called, the professor who runs the show, uh, puts in their mouth to make the sort of weird buzzing voice that Punch has. And, um, yeah, that's the solution. He wasn't technically murdered. And the gnomes are like, well, we, we're free now. Uh, and they, and Carrot sort of advises them to leave. And then, and I love that this is in there because the title of this, the story is Theatre of Cruelty. And this is an actual thing in theater. Uh, it was invented by a Frenchman many years ago. I'll put some stuff in the episode notes about it. But basically it was an idea to take performance, live performance, because it wasn't strictly about theater and make it this sort of weird, cathartic experience with just sort of spectacle and music and violence and strange stuff. It wasn't surrealism, but it was kind of like surrealism in live performance. And there's this sort of vague little hint that Pratchett puts in that, yes, I know what the title really means when the gnome's like, well, we thought we could start a people's cooperative and do, you know, experimental drama and street theatre. <laughs> Later in the books, I think it's in um, Monstrous Regiment, there's a passing reference to Punch and Judy shows. So my headcanon for this is that the gnomes go off and do their own version of the show where they're in charge because it was so popular with the kids. And so it becomes a thing and spreads around the world until it ends up in Boragravia where it gets mentioned in Monstrous Regiment. So I think it's a happy ending for the gnomes, I hope. Hmm. Yeah, I think so. I choose to believe that too. Yeah. And it is, and what you're saying, it is very clever by the way, how he, how he writes it. Because I wonder how long he spent, we'll never know obviously, but they can't kill him. I think possibly at one point he had that idea, but I think it's basically it becomes too dark if they kill him. So he obviously very cleverly went, oh, mm. okay. So they they kind of stood up for themselves, but they didn't, which is always something as an author you have about balancing, you know, depending on the context, you can't have someone actually kill somebody a lot of the time without that fundamentally changing who they are as a person. So like in films and stuff, you see that a lot where the baddie ultimately kills themselves while trying to kill the goodie, to put it in very simple terms. And that's kind of what you have here. And you found a very elegant way of doing it. Mm. The Disney death. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like the Disney thing. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Where um, the villain always pretty much dies, but it's always because of a choice they made and they could have avoided had they been a better person. So like in Beauty and the Beast, Gaston is saved by the Beast. Like the Beast has the opportunity to let him fall down and the Beast chooses to like, help him, and then when he turns around, Gaston tries to stab him in the back, and because of that, he loses his balance and falls down anyway. So yeah, we get the death, but it doesn't change who the beast is, doesn't do any of that stuff, so tidy. Yeah, Yeah. so the whole hosted with your own petard is the kind of thing where they always end up basically killing themselves off by doing something, and the the, the thing stays morally pure, exactly what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, like Elsa, who's in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, who won't let go of the... When she crosses the compass? No, well, it's when, when she's, like, falling down in the chasm and she's holding on by one hand and she won't, like, she's trying to reach the grace. Like, no, I can get it. I can get it. And he's like, no, leave it. You've got to get it. But she won't. She's too obsessed with the power and the, um, you know, whatever else. And so she falls to her death. Any in the mummy trying to get yeah. all the treasure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a classic trope. Um, and in this one, it's Mr. Slumber and his swazzle. <laughs> and that's part of his own. That, he that swazzles is, his swazzle. Well, it's also, it's like a real, it's a real thing too, because like he didn't need it because he, he, the gnomes, they've got their own voices, but he thought the swazzle was a funnier voice. So he's added this extra layer on and that's what does him in is he's just, he's taken it so far into mocking these tiny gnomes and making them perform for other people. And that's what does him in. And you're like, well, good riddance, <laughs> frankly. Yeah. It's a real buzzkill. 
<laughs> there you go. See? See? They- I feel like you did that on purpose. <laughs> the magic was there all along, just waiting, just waiting to come out. And look, the last the last kind of word there in the story is they sort of describe the acts that they were doing and Carrot's like appalled that this was something they were doing for children. And his last line is, that's not the way to do it, which <laughs> I thought was a lovely way to end the story. But that's that's kind of it. Uh, I mean, I, I'm frankly amazed we've talked for an hour about this short story. It's <laughs> it's so short, but it's, it is very good. And I mean, to be fair, we haven't talked for an hour about the short story. We've talked about a lot of other things <laughs> along the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alligators and crocodiles came up quite a lot. Um, I have a lot of things I need to research when we finish doing this, to be honest, which is un- so I didn't expect. <laughs> no, it's kind of how yeah. it goes with the Pratchett book, isn't it? Reading list. He puts all this research in and then you read the book and you're like, now I need to know more about these things. <laughs> I, that's how I feel about it anyway. All right, we'll, look, yeah. we, we'll move into the questions from our listeners. All right, so we got quite a few good questions from David K. Butler via Discord. Um, So I'd like to start with how many of the Watch have met death? So there's Carrot here and Vimes, David recalls at least once, and Nobby and Visit in Hogfather. Is that everyone? So I think so. I don't think anyone else in the Watch meets death. Nobby and they they sort of see him. There's a reference, and I have a terrible memory, but there is a reference when his granddaughter is doing the job for him that Mm. they see her going through on the horse and Nobby and Colin, I'm sure make a reference to knowing who it is, not meeting him, but that they see him anyway, because they, they sort of make reference because they're on the gate that they see him come through and they kind of know who death is. Cause I remember the line about, isn't he normally taller? Oh yeah. Like I think so that's they, in um, soul music maybe. Yes. That's very, very possible. Yeah. And there, cause I know there's a, yeah. So I think, me actually speaking to, if you, if the definition is speaking to, then yeah, I think you're dead. That list is probably, but yeah, if it's seeing, mm-hmm. I suppose is different. Um, but yeah, I think yeah. more of them probably see him. Yeah. Well, I mean, Cuddy definitely met death. I mean, we don't talk about I don't, that. I don't like to be reminded <laughs> of that. It's yeah. It's very it's, I mean, you know, ultimately everyone gets to meet him. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Not rats. <laughs> no, true enough. It's true. But technically, it's kind of, I guess. Sort of, right? yeah. Yeah. All right, and another one. Nobby's talk outline made me wonder, have you ever had a mundane job to do and turned it into a major artistic endeavor? That's a good question. Well, for me, it's with audio stuff, right? Like I just handed in this last week a podcast, which was an assignment for the graduate certificate I'm currently undertaking and I spent way too long editing it. Like I didn't put music in it or anything, but I just really went to town, tightening it up, making everybody sound smart in it. And I'm like, I, I didn't need to do that. <laughs> so that's probably my most <laughs> recent example. So it was, wasn't a mundane job I had. It was at a nice job at a magazine. Um, emails are not very exciting, are they? Um, so I tried to do a thing where like one day a week for internal office emails, we had to do them all in a haiku. Um, but like, which I committed to, but strangely did not catch on. So I feel yeah. like maybe that counts. Yeah, it's great. I never thought of this before, but I suppose the thing is basically I studied electronic engineering uh, in university, which I didn't really want to do. Generally, the reason I, by the way, I ended up doing that was because I have terrible handwriting. So all through school, because I was left-handed, never hold a pen correctly. No one could read when I wrote an essay. So they were like sort of going, they literally kept trying to put me into lower classes. And my mother kept fighting and going, no, he's smart. He's an intelligent child. Let him in the bigger, let him in the thing to go to university. 
So basically, I ended up doing electronic engineering because nobody could read when I was like writing essays and stuff or any kind of creative writing. And then I did engineering is just nothing but maths and, and sort of equations and stuff. And they gave us one class on like technology and it was done by like someone from the communications faculty. And but it was like the place of technology in society. And we had to write an essay. And this was the first time I'd written an essay on a computer. Everyone else in my class literally just knocked it off in there. It was a pass or fail thing. And because we had far more important courses that were loads of more working and stuff. And I spent about a week possibly writing it. I can remember it was called Three Deaths and a Funeral, some kind of pun on Four Weddings and a Funeral. And I remember, like, I got, like, a, a first for it. The woman lecturer brought me in and went, why are you doing engineering? Because <laughs> this is clearly what you wanted. And I was like, yeah, it's the first time anyone would ever let me use a keyboard to write something. And she was like, why Why are you in the, do you like engineering? No, no, I hate it. <laughs> she was like, well, I hope you find a way not to do it. Um, but yeah, I forgot all about that. But yeah, that was my, weirdly, that was my first sort of creative writing thing that, that people got to actually read. So yeah, I made that wow. far more than it needed to be. <laughs> That's great. Brilliant. Um, let's move on to a, a different question for now. So um, this next one comes from Craig via Discord. Um, Josh did a cover for this short story. Pratchett is generally not the greatest fan of Josh's work. What do you think of this one? And Craig's favorite non-Discord covers are The Sea and the Little Fishes and Turntables of the Night. So mm. I have not seen this cover. I think well, you've got a copy of a blink of the screen there, don't you, Liz? I think if you turn to the illustration section, you will find it because it was commissioned for the original magazine story. It was printed in the background behind the text. And then it was reused for the cover of a collection of short comic fantasy called The Wizards of Odd, which was published in, I think, 1996, which was the first time this was quote unquote, as Pratchett put it, properly published. I think he said it at the time. And it's basically Carrot's face looking at the gnomes, but the, but Carrot's drawn, oh. like his head is drawn as if he's a giant. He's so big. Yeah, that's the one. And then there's the little gnomes in front of him. And it's a pretty, it's a pretty great picture. I think it actually is one of my favorites of Josh Kirby's work. Does it kind of give away the, well, it does. But it, yeah, it gives away the whole thing. But I guess if you're looking at the cover of the book, you don't necessarily know what story it's illustrating. So yeah. maybe that's okay. I don't know. That is a tiny dog. Oh, was like, yeah, what's that? Because, I mean, plus, I mean, let's be honest, I don't, you don't read Terry Pratchett for the surprise ending. Like, he's never had the <laughs> terrible thing they put on crime books all the time, which is the twisty twist you'll never see coming thing. Because that's not the mm. point of reading a Terry Pratchett book. If you're just reading to find out what's in the end, you, I mean, it is the journey is the whole thing. Really, mm. like you know, I mean, I'm not saying they have satisfying endings. Of course they do, but it's not. You don't read to get to the end. You you hate getting to the end because you're enjoying it too much. That's the whole point of Pratchett. Yeah, they're surprising in the way a punchline of a joke is surprising, rather than you know, oh, I never would have seen that coming. Like it's that thing where someone once described a, a joke as a surprise that makes sense. That's a, that's a good punchline for a joke because you you don't expect it but then when it comes you're like oh of course what else could it have been and that that sort of recognition combined with a little bit of surprise is what makes yeah. a lot of jokes go and i feel like his plots are like that you get to yeah. the end and you don't go oh you go oh yeah it's like it's like you know it's satisfying but it's like the cuddy moment as we briefly sort of thing is that's genuinely shocking because you didn't it it steps outside of the boundaries that you thought you understood of the world 
Um, what's mm. fascinating about it is he doesn't really have characters die. It's the, it's like the classic, the Game of Thrones thing. Do you remember, you know, the first series? Of, I mean, this is a spoiler for Game of Thrones for the next 10 seconds if anyone hasn't watched Game of Thrones and it's, it's for some reason waiting. But, you know, when, <laughs> when a main character dies, that mm. was quite shocking because you never see that on TV. And it is quite, and, you know, and it doesn't really fit into what Pratchett does. That's why the Cody moment is shocking. Yeah. But I, on the cover, coming back to the question, I do really like it. I actually am on board with it. Maybe it's because, like, and we've talked about this before, whenever he draws Angor or someone, it's very, as a guest put it, titsy. (laughs) And there isn't that in this one. Yeah, I was (laughs) was trying to find a way of saying that. That's, yeah. Yeah, well, you could say it. The other thing for me about this one is that, and I don't know if it's because of the scale he's drawn Carrot's face at, and the fact that at this point in the book's carrot is meant to be very young. Like I think he's 16 or 17 years old, but he's drawn it. He's very smooth. Like, you know, there's that weird lumpiness that all of the characters have in that mm. classic Josh Kirby cover style. And it, the gnomes have that in this picture, but carrot's face doesn't. And it's a really, I don't know. It's, I really like that picture of carrot's face. I'd have that up in my house. Yeah, it's, it's mm. good. I really dig it. All right. So our next question comes from Bell via Discord. Pratchett states that Theatre of Cruelty was written to a 1,000-word limit for a free magazine. How does your process differ when writing to many constraints, so a small word limit, a tight deadline, a specific medium, compared to a less limited work? Interesting. Well, you've done a fair bit of this, Liz, because you've written a lot of short fiction. That's mostly the, the fiction that you've had published. Yeah, but generally they're like it has to be less than 5,000 words or it has to be less than 3,000 words. That gives you a lot of wiggle room because I tend to start with an idea And then sort of you can mentally map out how much space you'll need to get that idea down and you can sort of filter through and go, okay, that needs more than 3,000, that needs more than 1,000. 1,000 is very tight though. Like it's difficult to get a whole thing out there, characterize, get people invested um, and then resolve it without it and and make it interesting as well because you could absolutely sketch out one of those short stories that's a moody scene or like almost a vignette but to make a complete short story in the way that he has is very difficult. So, I mean, the question being like, how does your process differ when writing to many constraints? I guess there are always constraints when I'm writing. So it's just a matter of choosing the idea that will work to it and then putting in measure, putting in place measures to help you achieve that. But I mean, I had to write one that was 1,200 words and that was a challenge, but it ended up being one of my favorite ones because I had to keep distilling it down to its bare essentials. So how does it differ? You just, it's just a lot more swearing in my brain, <laughs> I think, depending on how difficult the constraints are. Yeah. yeah. How about you, Quiv? Yeah, I mean, it depends on what the constraint is and stuff. But weirdly, how you really learn about writing and constraints is, remember I said, you know, I, I wrote kids TV and stuff and like a cartoon as well. Like I written a sh- an episode of Shaun the Sheep and things like that. And I wrote, I wrote, got a lot of episodes of a short cartoon that was like 11 and a half minutes long. And you basically, like, you've got no wiggle room. It has to get to that time. If you go over mm. that time, they will just say, well, we're going to have to cut some stuff. And so you you need to, so you do end up becoming out. When I wrote, the sharpest I've probably ever been as a writer was when I had to go for a year writing a cartoon series where it had to hit that. And after that, it was like I'd been to the gym. Do you know what I mean? For like where I was so sharp because you had to be. Because, I mean, one of the great things, frankly, about writing books is my books are however long they need to be nobody's even the next stranger time book is technically by a bit the longest book i've ever written and nobody's querying it and say they're just like yeah fine but it all makes sense and 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 they liked it so they left it as it was 
But when you have to write something short, you're right, it does kind of get you, you have to be super focused because you don't have time and you can, you know, it's always generally as a rule, like you were saying, like less than a thousand word chapter in a book is quite unusual. I think in most Mm. books, certainly in mine, like occasionally, but that's they're usually like bridging chapters, if you like, where you're just getting something quick explained. So to do a short story in a thousand is really demanding. The only time it's actually weirdly, because when I do the ones for the short Strange Times podcast and stuff, I just write the story and I don't worry about the length. But the hardback of the third book, uh, Love Will Tear Us Apart and Strange Time series, there's a short story in the back of that. The reason for that was they went, because it's how it's bound, we've just realized that there was like eight pages left at the back because it comes in like blocks of 16 or whatever, how printing works. They went, have you got anything that would fit in? And that was the first time I had to go back and go, oh, and I actually went back and looked at my short stories to find out what one would fit. And interestingly, it's the one I did, which is a kind of weirdly, it's an odd sort of tribute to Pratchett in the sense that it's probably quite horror in the sense that there's a, there's a monster that's attacking somebody in the street. But I, I put footnotes in it and I've never done that before or since, but I just, I did it as my own little, I wanted to write one thing with footnotes because, you know, that's the ultimate Pratchett thing. Uh, and I did have, have fun putting footnotes in and it weirdly ended up being the one that fit. So I had to put a note in explaining because you always want to go, I'm aware of what I'm doing. This is Jimmy to Terry Pratchett. I'm not just <laughs> ripping them off. Um, but yeah, but they are, I mean, if you can get it right, a really short thing like that is brilliant, but it's incredibly hard to do. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. that that doesn't remind me. There was a question we did get uh, about the footnote because we haven't mentioned that there is one footnote in this short story, mm. which is just when Vimes mentions Hank Morpork or when it mentions that Vimes is in Hank Morpork, there's a little footnote that says, which was the greatest city on the disc world, which traveled through space on the back of a turtle on the back of four elephants. And why not? Um, and which is just a delightful way to sum up the whole thing. But we did get a question. This was one of David's other ones. Are there any other books whose setting could be neatly summed up in a footnote that ends and why not? <laughs> and I feel like it's the kind of generic one that you could, I mean, you could say that about a lot of books. Any setting, arguably. Yeah, you could say that about Stranger Times, I think we've. Yeah. I mean, it probably hasn't got as as a snappy thing as that, but um Jenny, what popped into my head as an, as an author, my first thing was, I wonder if the footnotes counted in the, the number count of the words. <laughs> oh, in the I'm thousand words. Probably is. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. um, if not, you know, that's 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 the way you cheat the system there. Uh, just write a thousand word oh, yeah. thing. With like oh, there'd be more. 800 words of footnotes. <laughs> um, but yeah. Yeah, I did that in an essay once. <laughs> Put a bunch of stuff in a footnote. So I really want to say this doesn't really fit in the thousand words I've got. I'll just stick it in the footnote. And pretend it doesn't count. I did half a master's in creative writing because <laughs> yeah. basically uh, I started doing it and then I published some books and they were like, they got to the point where you had to pay someone to read your book. And I'm like, no, people pay to read my books. I'm not doing it the other <laughs> way around. So I never finished it. But I remember that the hilarious thing was you had to write an essay about something and there was all the, the referencing and my wife has a degree in English and stuff and all this thing with referencing at the Abaca stuff. And I was like, oh, this is, I'm not doing this bullshit. I broke down what I said. So now yeah, everything you've everything you have to reference. She, she eventually took it off me because she got so annoyed because she's a very exact person with these things. She used to be an editor. <laughs> And she went and she actually took it off me and sorry, I'm just, and she ended up putting all the notes in at the back because I just, whatever it was, made me so angry. It was like, what do you care where I got this stuff from? I've said it. In the, if it's important, I told you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, speaking of someone who's gone back to university after 20 years and who didn't finish a degree the first time around, I am finding a lot of that stuff quite a challenge. 
But I also have a little streak of what your wife has. I'm quite particular about these things. So I'm like trying to do it right. Well, we've got a few more questions from Bell via Discord. So I'm going to distill two into one, um, which just means I'm going to ask them one after the other and we'll answer them together. So one is, if you were to write a short story set in the universe of another author, what would you choose? And the other one is any recommendations for short stories, either individuals or collections. Ooh. Would you would you write a Discworld short story if you got asked, Queeve? Would that be a dream job or would you be too intimidated to try? I mean, I'm sure there's part of me, but, but it is one of those things where, you know, there is there's certain authors that are dead and still releasing books now, literally. Mm. So, mm. The, which is, I always find weird. And Pratchett, I think because Pratchett made such a thing of having the things crushed and nobody does anything. Like mm. he, he sort of said, so it's nothing. I've never heard anyone suggesting it. Cause you know, they did the, the hitchhikers book. Yeah. Owen Colfer, if I remember rightly, he was a very fine author, by the way, mm. but the idea of just doing another one felt weird. It felt like somebody cashing in and look, maybe if someone came to me and I'm not, you know, suggested doing that, I guess I would have been tempted as a fan, but yeah, I, I mean, this world would be the obvious one. I've often thought about what I would write if somebody ever said it's a disc world thing, but I'm never going to. But I've had ideas about what you would do next. And, you know, it was, it's always fascinating because you know the world so well. Hmm. But Ben Aranovich's world of Rivers of London is probably not a million miles from Stranger Times world and stuff. But I think even he's, I think he's actually said, someone asked him this in, a, in an event I did with him. And he said, he's told his son, nobody's writing another book. He said he'd be okay with graphic novels in the, in the area, hmm. which was fascinating because he's had, he's got quite a lot of them but he didn't want anyone writing a book after he was gone. It was Rivers London was just his, mm. uh, which I, I, again, fully respect. So I don't know whose world outside of that I would like to. Chris Brookmeyer's work I love. I, I'd definitely write a short story with Parlamane, his journalist detective guy. That'd probably be the one I'd say, just because he hasn't actively said he doesn't want someone to. Hmm. So um, whereas obviously the two, my two first choices both said they don't want it. So um, I guess him <laughs> then, that would be my answer. Yeah. I think it's difficult because if it's a single author, you know, you kind of feel like you have to emulate the tone and the style of a particular person's writing. And it feels weird. It's weird. It's like putting on somebody else's clothes. And even if you've got their permission, sometimes it doesn't feel right. I would rather write for a world that was a group's creation that lots of people have worked on. You know, like I I would kill, I would kill to write a Doctor Who thing that was official. I would love it. I'm a big Doctor Who nerd. I think that would be great. And it's the one that I know best. So I think for me, that would be it. But that doesn't belong to a particular author. Uh, and so I, I wouldn't feel weird about it. Whereas, and I think also it's different writing fan fiction than it is writing as a professional as well. I've written plenty of fan fiction. I never wrote any Discworld fan fiction, but I did write like Doctor Who fan fiction and Red Dwarf fan fiction when I was starting out trying to write fiction myself. And that felt fine because, you know, more than one person worked on those things and that felt like an invitation that it could belong to more than one person, but I'd still feel differently writing about it in a professional context as a professional writer than I would as a fan doing something just for fun for myself and other fans. Yeah. For me, I think it'd have to be the place that Stephen King made up Maine. Um, (laughs) It feels that way sometimes. Uh, (laughs) It's like, it's like the American Tasmania. It's just someplace somebody made (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's not real, right? Like, devil's in it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Can I change my answer to Tasmania? I'd like to write something in Tasmania, please. <laughs> All right. 
What a very specific beef I'm going to have after uh, this. <laughs> no, no. You, uh, if you want to get into Tasmania more, you should watch Deadlock if you haven't seen it already. It's an Australian comedy crime drama, oh, okay. which is set in a small town in Tasmania. Oh. Not a real small town in Tasmania, a fictional one, but it does feel like Tasmania. There's no, there's no such thing. Um. Um, cool. I will check it out. But I think yeah, as a writer, I um, I don't think I could write in another writer's world. I'd be too – it's just not how I, – I don't think I could do it. I'd have to do it in a very self-aware in the text way. So, like, it'd be a story typical of one of mine that's for some reason transported into an Enid Blyton setting or some reason transported into an Agatha Christie setting. But the fact that it's there would have to form part of the story because I just don't think I could – do it i don't mm. as in, not ethically i just don't think my brain would be able to do it yeah if i think i think we said, if i was doing something i genuinely would have to be able to can i write something in your world with my voice so it would end up being a weird sort of offshoot of your world where i pick out a weird little thing um which is how your sort of yeah your brain works like i remember i did like years ago i did a ghost tour of manchester because i said my series is set in manchester and just mm. i think it was when the first book had been written but i got a guy to, who does the ghost tours of manchester i got love him it was like three o'clock on a Tuesday. And it was my birthday, bizarrely. And he's like, oh, how are you guys all free at a three o'clock on a Tuesday? I was like, oh, I didn't, sorry, I didn't tell you this. Uh, the other 11 guys are all stand-up comedians because we're all free. They were three o'clock on a Tuesday. And, it's my, and he was like, so the entire tour of stand-up comedians is like, yeah, you just see his face go, oh, God, no. Uh, <laughs> this is his worst nightmare. <laughs> but he was, and I said, I was, I was basically looking for ideas for things for Stranger Time short stories and stuff. And he said, oh, what kind of stuff in particular? And I went, don't bother showing me anything. Literally, the bits that will spark stuff in my head, you will never, like, it just will never occur to you that that would be it because it's the whole point is it'll go off and wear it offshoot. So I think if I was doing something in somebody else's world, it would again be a weird offshoot, like taking a, the old Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is dead, mm. you know, that play that, um, yeah, it was that. Uh, but he wrote based on two guys who disappear in Hamlet who get killed on the way to a thing. Yeah, so I, I think that's the kind of thing because otherwise, like you're saying, because it's a weird thing where and it's, I don't like it. There are authors who who have ghost writers and stuff. Mm. It, it happens quite a lot now, which is like there's more than people know about, but there's a lot of people don't know about. I got approached to write a ghost write somebody's book, which I didn't. Because barring Elsie's story, if you read my stuff, <laughs> say what you want about it. People love it or hate it, but it's freaking distinctive. Yeah. The idea that that like my voice would make your because you went well, it's set in Ireland. And I went. Yeah, I don't think the setting is going to be the problem, mate. I, the I am never writing your your Jack Reacher knockoff. Like that's just not something that I had ever. Yeah, it's not the way my brain works. It, it like, literally would just squirm away and start doing other things. So yeah, I, I think with someone else's permission, if they invited you in and were enjoying the fact that you were doing something different. Just, just quickly, by the way, because you mentioned fan fiction, I did the event with Ben Aranovich earlier this year, which is great. But this woman asked the question, said, Ben, you've had like, I looked up your fan fiction for your work and you've had like hundreds of stories. Queef, you have none. And I remember sitting on stage, oh God, now I'm going to have to assume a name and write my own fan fiction. <laughs> look bad in this. <laughs> All right. Like, I mean, I've got some offshoots and some crap. I'm sure he read chapter. I could probably just stick that out as fan fiction. It's like yeah. Uh, I look. I, the last thing I'll say about this, though, I th- I think the other thing though is that sometimes it's more fun to do your own version of someone else's world. Like it's not like you don't try and write. For example, you wouldn't try and write the Discworld, but you go, what would my version of a comedy fantasy universe be? Or doing an explicit parody, like you know, it's very fun to write like your own kind of weird, fun version of Star Trek or a superhero team or something like that, and it recognizably riffs on the official thing, but it's not the official thing, and it can go off in its own direction. I think that can be 
more fun than working in someone else's universe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, recommendations for short stories, oh, yeah. either individual short stories or collections. I look, this, there's a Sherlock Holmes reference in this. So I'm going to recommend, and we've mentioned the author already. So I am going to mention a couple of Neil Gaiman short stories that are about Sherlock Holmes. So there's the famous one that he won the award for, which is a study in Emerald is in a collection called Shadows Over Baker Street, kind of like a mashup of Sherlock Holmes and Cthulhu mythos kind of stuff. But there's another one, which is about beekeeping that appears in a short story collection called A Study in Sherlock. That's also really good. And that is writing in another author's world. So there you go. I feel like I've tied all the questions in together. Beautifully done. Uh, but would have been better if I'd remembered the name of the actual story. But I'll put it in the episode notes. I remember Harlan Ellison's short stories. I loved them when I was, I think I got a collection of short stories, which was Dangerous Visions. He asked a lot of other authors to write short stories that they didn't think they could write somewhere else. And there's all these different things in it that are quite interesting. There's a couple of them that, shall we say, probably wouldn't be published now, one in particular I can think of. But the whole point was they were out there sort of things. And then I started from there getting into Harold Nellison's work in particular. There was a book called Angry Candy, which was short stories he wrote when basically he had a year where like three or four people he was friends with, their family members had died. Hmm. And it was all his thing about coping with death and grief and stuff. And I can remember as a kid finding them, you know, got like a, 14 year old kid considering death, which is, you know, almost impossible for, because at that age, it just doesn't as a concept. But I remember his being very evocative. Um, and he was a man who was much more known for short stories. Again, like you were saying with Philip K. Dick, he was, I think Ellison was much more known for short stories than he was for novels and stuff. I know he wrote a load of them, but short stories was probably where he excelled. So his work, I'd say, and Dangerous Visions. I mean, I'm not, you know, <laughs> don't complain to me if you get upset by anything in it, but I do remember them being amazing when I was reading them as a kid. I'm going to be a bit greedy in my answer, and I hope that's okay, but I'll try to be succinct about my greed. I mentioned Philip K. Dick earlier, and I would definitely recommend if you get the chance to pick up any collection of his short stories, because um, there's so many of them, and just making your way through. They are very variable in quality in terms of the writing, but as I said at the beginning, I do think he's always got a solid idea at the core of them, and that always comes through. So, And I think it's also a fascinating exercise to see like how a writer approaches things in different ways because they're not all perfect polished ones but they're all worth reading mm. for different reasons so if you can get your hand on a collection of them and just make your way through from beginning to end i think it's always worth it because i'm fascinated by him as an author and i always enjoy reading his work even if i don't think it's the most polished version of what it could have been because he got a lot of stuff out there which is very impressive um in terms of an individual short story i think diana Wynne Jones's short story, Carol O'Neill's 100th Dream, I think it's called, which is part of her Crestomancy series. Fascinating one. It was written for younger readers, but really interesting premise. And it dives you straight into a world. Like it is an offshoot of a bigger world she created, but it stands alone. So I think that's one that's worth digging up. And then finally, I always come back to The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. Very famous short story, but I think it holds up really well despite being written decades and decades ago, um, very cleverly done. I don't think there's a single word I'd change in it. It's very clever. And then she has some great collections built off that. One is called, very credibly, The Lottery and Other Stories. And there's another one called Dark Tales, which is good. And again, an author with lots of different approaches, but always something she's trying to tease out in them. So um, so go get those. That's two books, um, all of Philip K. Dick's short stories and one of Von Hanuman Jones. So just um, go off and casually read those <laughs> it's a good collection i don't think you can yeah. go wrong and of course you can read theater of cruelty that's available for free on the internet uh if you haven't Absolutely. already had it completely ruined by this discussion 
All right. So our question from Steve Lay via Twitter, I think we've covered a little bit in our conversation, which um, talks about Punch and Judy shows. Are they a relict of Britain's past that didn't survive the journey elsewhere? Well, they survived partly. I mean, I have seen one in Australia a long time ago. And certainly we, you know, we get a lot of British media here. So we've seen them on TV and stuff. And we made a film, like I said. So I think it's there, but it's very pretty deep and it's very mired in that sort of uh, Victorian atmosphere, which is when it sort of had the big revival and became kind of fixed because, you know, it was like a lot of art forms that changed a bit over the time. And then by the time it got to sort of the Victorian era, it kind of evolved into a particular form and that was seen as the way to do it, if I can say that about Punch and Judy. So I think, yes. <laughs> um, sorry, I've, I've just, <laughs> while you were saying that, I just thought, I wonder if they're actually still existing. And there's, um, there, I've just looked at Punch and Judy shows near me. Um, and it says Punch and Judy shows in, in my area. As a start to a website, this is incredible. The first line on the website is the Punch and Judy Fellowship is pledged to ensuring that its members are not wrongly asked for DBS checks, formerly C or B. That's the check that you're allowed to work with children. Now, whatever about why Whoa. they say that we should be wrongly asked or not, that is the weirdest start to a website. No. <laughs> I have, that is literally going, just to be clear before you go any further, I'm not a wrong one. I'm not a wrong one. Just what? That's such. Wow. Um, What's the story I, there? <laughs> nothing good. I just, I don't, I, that's fascinating. Huh? You can search by all these different areas. And it has lists of people and their telephone numbers, which is, again, weird. Someone's a telephone number on the website. And they're all full members of the Punch and Judy thing. So all, all these people clearly do Punch and Judy shows. So they're obviously still in existence. Um, maybe it's just the search brought me to this page first, but that is the weirdest start to a website I have ever seen. Whoa. Um, Please don't call any of the numbers. No. <laughs> no. no, I mean... I mean, it'd be very expensive just, if we did it. Well, you could, I'm sure you could WhatsApp them. Um, but yeah, <laughs> available for birthday parties, christenings. Yeah, because you, you christenings. Um, no, I don't think I. Um, no weddings. There's also stuff about yeah. I'm sure they also oh, the whole package with a bouncy castle replica vehicle swing. Up, so there's a, a roller coaster. That seems unlikely that you'll have a roller coaster, mate. Um, <laughs> that doesn't feel like it's a. <laughs> Yeah, and they're all, I think they're all sort of like updated versions of it. But yeah. Wow. God, I think I'm kind of, I have a horrible feeling I'm going to end up (laughs) going through all of these and going to see a Punch and Judy show. Oh, no. Um, You should bring 11 stand-up comedians with you if you do. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly what I'm doing. (laughs) Please let us know how it goes. It's my birthday next week. Weirdly, I'm really tempted to hire a Punch (laughs) and Judy show now. Yes, do it. Oh, my God. Yes. Just me and like 11 grown ass men and, a, and bring the bouncy castle so you can just look at it and go, none of you are getting on. None of you. I <laughs> I wonder, I want, like, there's this tradition in Punch and Judy where they add in a new figure of derision. So like during World War II, for example, they replaced the devil with Hitler, right? So could you, if you're getting hiring a Punch and Judy show, can you say, and can you have Punch beat up? such like elon musk can we put elon musk in the punch and judy show uh like i wonder if that is a thing that they offer as a service because that could be quite cathartic i'm so fascinated now all right so let's go to the final question which comes from sven via discord taking the title very literally what was the most cruel theater slash performance session you ever witnessed was it a total flop show or a butchered adaptation oh wow i think sven you're, you're looking for unintentionally cruel aren't you i think it was one i was in uh, when I was at university, I did a lot of student theatre 
and I was in a production of the Caucasian Chalk Circle, classic bit of theatre, uh, and it was like produced as this sort of very over-the-top musical. I mean, it wasn't literally turned into a musical, but there was singing and there was music and there was this big celebration. We danced to like Belinda Carlisle at the end and and it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. And, in fact, the director of that was renowned for putting on these very bad productions of classic stage plays. So I think for me, I saw it from the inside. That was my experience of uh, the, the most cruel theatre. Um, I think professionally I probably shouldn't answer this as <laughs> no. detailedly as I could. Um, I've been to a lot of shows that were objectively bad, but people are trying and you can understand that. So I'm going to go with the with two examples um, of just weird things that are happening or a show that should be retired, perhaps, in my opinion. So one of them, it was a ballet slash opera, which was brilliant. Like Everyone was top of their game. And then suddenly it stopped and we weren't sure if it had finished or what was going on. And it was paused for like 20 or 30 minutes. It turned out someone had dislocated their entire leg. Whoa. Um, Yeah, and had to be taken to the hospital. We didn't find that out till later. And then they started the show again, minus that person, obviously, and finished it well. But um, that was probably not a great time for that person, but that's a good recovery. The second one is the opera Parsifal, which is no matter how talented the people performing it is one of the most boring <laughs> things ever committed to paper. And I do not know why opera companies keep trotting it out. The music is fine, but there's lots of better operas. The story is nothing. (laughs) And yeah, you can jazz it up with sets, but like, why bother? It's just like, it is like kicking a dead horse. I think people hated it even when it first came out. I don't know who loves Parsifal so much that they keep being like, yeah, let's, let's add this. And it's also very long. It's three acts. And it's the only one I've ever considered leaving during the first intermission. And I was like, no, I'm going to see what the second act is like. And they jazzed up the set enough. I was like, okay, maybe this will hold my interest. And then, no, it was back to the sad man sitting by a lake thinking about a swan. It was just bad. If you ever get invited to go see Parsifal, unless there's like a compelling other reason beyond the story to go, don't. Okay. It's a <laughs> cool. strong anti-recommendation there. <laughs> yeah. It never Parsifal. But, but weirdly, I was going to talk. I was, what immediately popped into my head was leaving a show at halftime at the interval myself and my wife because it was. I always remember our friend invited us to this thing and then she was ill and couldn't go because she wanted to go see a new theatre. So it ended up the two of us going and it was dreadful. And we had this weird thing where um, my wife, who hated me smoking, had to pretend she smoked to get out of the building with me to go pretend to have a cigarette <laughs> uh, because she was like literally so, it was awful. But the one that weirdly, and this is a quite Pratchett-esque, um, as I said, but Pratchett thing, I, I did a thing myself and a friend of mine, Gary Delaney, who's my oldest mate in comedy. We came up with our own panel show, which is, you probably get them in Australia. You know what a panel show is, like, yeah, off yeah. the week and all. You have some idea what they are over there because Americans never get it. But we had panel beaters, which was our version of a panel show that we did <laughs> and we were doing it as a podcast. Great name. Um, well, thank you. The thing I came up with, again, this is very Pratchett-esque, is as a judge, we had death. We had my mate Rob playing the Grim Reaper. And he was the judge of the whole panel thing. And it sort of gave it a different spin where it was death judging stuff. And it became quite sort of fun. And people were sort of pushing the, the boundaries. And we started doing it with uh, there's a guy, Jason Manford, who's a, who's a quite well-known comic in Britain. And he's a good mate of ours. He, he, we started developing it with him. And the idea was he was presenting it and death was the judge. And we did it in the Leicester Comedy Festival. So there's like three comics, death, Jason Manford. We're doing it in quite a big room in Leicester. We did it twice in a day. And the second show... A person on the front row basically keeled over. That's what reminded me when you said about having to actually stop the show. And they just sort of collapsed in the thing. 
and they had to stop the show and go, ooh. And the thing is, they were fine. It was all that. They took, they took them away. Apparently, this was an ongoing medical thing where, bizarrely, I think their partner said, oh, yeah, this has happened to the show before. And you're like, why do you sit in the front row? Like, that's such a weird, we were, like, we were going. <laughs> but so thankfully, they were okay. But what was, what we didn't know that at the time, though. And I was at the back because I was, like, producing it. And my mate Rob is literally holding a scythe dressed as the Grim Reaper. <laughs> and the guy has fallen over in the front row and collapsed on the ground. And as a comic, if something happens when you're on stage, every instinct you have is to say something because you're trying to control the environment. You're literally programmed to do it. If something happens, you react to it. You don't just stop. Mm -hmm. So he was there. And I just always remember he was standing there. And I could see, like, when they were dealing with him, sort of, and I literally just ran up half the room and just pointed and went, get off. Because it was like there is nothing you can do here. Like, and it was like literally. And then thankfully we found out the guy was. And Jason Manford is a masterful comedian where he managed to relax the whole audience, explain that everything was fine, and then we were actually met. Then we could do a joke with death because the room got that everything was okay. Yeah. But at the moment we just had this horrible image of like him saying anything. We're going for the love of God. <laughs> that's amazing i just realized we were, we were filming that as well that's what it was doing we were, Whoa. we were filming it so it would have been even amazing piece of television but yes oh wow <laughs> wow well I don't, I don't think we can top yeah. that liz um no, absolutely. <laughs> i think i think i think it might be time to go quick thank you so much for coming on the show what a delight oh it's been a delight because every other podcast they go on, I spend far too long talking about Terry Pratchett. This is the first one where it's actually paid dividends. It's, it's <laughs> the point. It's the point. Well, look, thank you. Uh, look, I appreciate you coming on to talk about Terry Pratchett when at the top of the show you mentioned you're sick of people reviewing your books and telling everyone how they're like Terry Pratchett. But <laughs> it, we should plug your books. Like, Obviously, there's the, the Stranger Time series, the main series that people say is probably for Pratchett fans. And the third one came out earlier this year and is coming out in paperback in October. That's Love Will Tear Us Apart. Yeah, that's coming out in like the UK in paperback in October mm. and it's coming out in Germany probably around that time as well, I think, in paperback. And then the fourth one, Relight My Fire, comes out in the UK and Ireland and stuff at the end of January, which I'm really excited about because it's probably my favourite one of them. Oh, so, cool. yeah, and then the, the other books are the Bunny McGarry books, which are sort of crime, but again with my voice. So it ends up being sort of, it's not conventional crime, let's put it that way. Yeah. And there's a lot of, there's like eight of those, isn't there? Oh God, no, there's, there's um, literally, if, if any writer's listening, I'm sure there's quite a few. If you take nothing else away, never give your series a number in the title. I call it the Dublin Trilogy, then realized the third book was actually going to need a prequel. And then it's because it was too, it was, it was, and then I went, well, I've already broken the prequel. I already have four. So now we're on to book seven of the Dublin Trilogy, <laughs> um, which is actually better because when you're at four and five, you get the emails, people go, and you know what a trilogy is, right? When you get to seven, they go, okay. And we've just like leaned into it and called it the increasing inaccurate. So there's like seven of them. There's the fourth McGarry Stateside book, which is a spinoff of them. And mm -hmm. there's like two, I've literally written, I've written spinoffs of a spinoff <laughs> with two side characters when I got stuck at home when I was supposed to be going to Mexico for, and then COVID stopped us to go on holiday. So I ended up writing a book for a couple of months instead. Um, so like I've done everything you shouldn't do, or I've just randomly written stuff in the same world. Um, but people are like, they need a map to find, figure out where all the books go. So, yeah. Great. And if people want to listen to you rather than read your words, the Stranger Times podcast is a, a whole thing. 
And you've got something special coming up for Halloween, if people are listening to this around the time it's released. Yes, hopefully. I haven't figured it out yet, but I basically I think I'm going to do a live short story read of a short story that I've never um, like never been anywhere before. And I think I'm going to do it live. So it'll be like a Facebook thing, YouTube, Facebook, I'm, I'm guessing. But basically, yeah, just follow me on YouTube or Facebook, like look up Queen McDonald. Uh, C-A-I-M-H, because no one can spell it. Um, and you'll, yeah, there'll be loads of stuff there. And I'm, cause I'm, I think I'm going to do that. I may live to regret this idea. Um, but <laughs> I, I just had the idea of doing it as a live. The only reason I'm doing this short story is because, uh, Top Tip, it has no, it has almost no dialogue. So I don't have to do voices. <laughs> um, cause that's the bit I draw the line at, cause I'm not good at that. I've got a brilliant narrator who does the, the, the books for us for, for a thing. So yeah, we'll be doing that around Halloween, um, and just having some fun stuff. And then there'll be a new series of the short story of the short stories coming out in December, January, I'm guessing there'll be about four or five more. Great. We'll stick uh, links to all of those things in our episode notes, but thanks once again for coming on the show. It's been such a pleasure. It's been a blast. It's been a delight. Thanks for having me. It's ridiculous that we've been talking for this long and I've enjoyed it this much. Um, (laughs) No, it's been a delight. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And so for the next episode, Ben, do you want to tell us um, where we're heading to next? Well, I I don't want to be too judgmental about it, Liz, but it's time for us to end the Science of Discworld series. We're going to read the Science of Discworld for Judgment Day. I mean, wasn't that the title of Science of Discworld 3 podcast for us? (laughs) Well, yeah, I feel, you know what? I feel I've missed a trick by not doing that in some sort of Arnold Schwarzenegger impression, but I'm not going to do that. That seems, that would be hacky. Uh, (laughs) But yes, that's going to be our episode for October and I'm really looking forward to it. We're probably going to have two very special guests, Uh, but you should send your questions in to us using the hashtag PrattChat71. And of course, if you want to send in any questions or answers to questions that we asked during this episode, send them in with the hashtag PrattChat70. Oh, we're nearly, you know, when we said six-ish years, Liz, we're nearly at six. Yeah, well, it's going to be more than ish. Like, it's going to be a few. I think we started with five-ish, in fact, but it's good. Yeah, we revised it. Yeah, we did the maths. <laughs> and, of course, thank you, listener, for listening to Pratt Chat. We wouldn't be doing this without you. It would be entirely pointless. So thank you for listening. Thank you for spreading the word and letting other people know that the show is on, which is a great way you can support the show. And thank you, of course, to all of our subscribers who make it possible for us to make the show without having to sell our soul to a punch and Judy man and perform like a horrible puppet. And so until next time, remember, that's not the way to do it. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchetters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Queeb McDonald. Pratchett is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton. We're on Twitter, Mastodon, Instagram, Blue Sky and Facebook and you can listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PrattChatPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat70. And yes, I know it's Caymans, not Gaymans. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendorChaps.com.